Dixon, what the fuck are you doing in here? What? Uh, to just... Got a push uh, broom, man? <laughs> You're pouring whiskey all over the floor? You're scrubbing it in a very artistic way? You have a camera pointed down toward it? What is going on? Are you making Roma? Are you recreating Roma? I hope not. <laughs> oh, man. Well, welcome, everybody. Um, Dixon has surprised me at the table here. Uh, uh, but but uh, your familiar faces that I'm listening to, you're listening to me, uh, they, they make perfect sense. Welcome, welcome. Um, <laughs> good evening. Whenever you are, wherever you are, welcome to the Underground Table. Um, <clears throat> I am your host, John Garcia, and with me, as always, is Ryan King. How's it going? I don't think whiskey really gets stains out. Uh, if you scrub hard enough, okay. I think, yeah. <laughs> Definitely eliminates a lot of other odors. Might have been on that floor. <laughs> and uh, as always, uh, Michael Dixon's also with me. Yeah, uh, it's good to see you guys. Uh, pull, pulling back the curtain a little bit. It's been a couple weeks since we recorded because you guys decided to go on vacation. I showed up here yeah, last week and no one was here. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's good. I didn't have an in-depth film conversation last week, so it's fun to yeah, uh, Picked up to a second job scrubbing floors with whiskey. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we're, I mean, I'm happy that we're all back. Um, I'm super excited to talk about this movie. Uh, and so I, I don't want to delay any further. Um, I'd like, I don't want to use the phrase defend yourself. This is another one of those picks, just like pig, man. Why well, you keep doing this to me? Keep picking these good movies that I, I have to I'm not looking forward to the backlash, uh, oh, yeah. week, but, um, As is yeah. tradition. uh, so, so last episode we talked about, um, Alfonso Cuaron's children of men and, uh, I had never seen that movie. Uh, I really loved it. And it reminded me a lot of his 2018 masterpiece Roma and John and Ryan hadn't seen it. So I decided to pick that we're doing a still in the round of things we have seen before. So, um, yeah, uh, I'm, I, I love this movie. Um, Quaron kind of fashioned this uh, after his childhood, trying to kind of reproduce memories from when he was a kid. But rather than focusing the story on himself, he focuses on his family's housekeeper and uh, kind of the, the struggles that she goes through um, living in Mexico City in 1970 and 1971. Um, it's an absolutely beautiful film. Um, Emmanuel Lebeski, who is Quaron's uh, cinematographer normally and who shot Children of Men was unavailable. So Quaron shot it himself and actually won an Oscar for Best Cinematography uh, and an Oscar for Directing. <laughs> I don't know how he was able to do both of those in this movie so incredibly well. Um, but it, it, the film's gorgeous. It, it, it really is about Cleo, this, this woman who is... Um, uh, his, his housekeeper when he was a child. Um, it's modeled after this woman named Lebo, who was his actual housekeeper. Um, and she actually gets a, a credit at the end that says for Lebo. Um, and kind of this, this sweet moment at the end of the film. But um, it, it kind of follows her, her struggles. The Mexico City is very classist. And, you know, the upper and middle classes tend to be lighter skinned. And the lower classes tend to be indigenous people of darker skin who end up in service roles and, and have jobs that kind of prop up the middle and upper class. Uh, so a lot of the film is about that dynamic of race and class and how it manifests itself in Mexico City. Um, and then uh, Cleo at one point in the, in the movie uh, gets pregnant and a lot of the film is about her journey through pregnancy and, and kind of trying to 
deal with all the cultural things that arise from that and um, things move forward from there. So um, that, that's generally the plot analysis. It's not a plot heavy movie. It's a very atmospheric film that is really about trying to reproduce this time and place as accurately as possible. And um, it's just one of the most beautiful uh, films that I, I've ever seen. It's incredibly empathetic to all of the characters, even ones that are total pieces of shit. The movie still has um, empathy for everybody in this environment. And um, yeah, I mean, I love this movie. This was my number three movie of 2018. It's very possible I was too low on it. Um, it's great. Uh, so yeah, I, I want to hear what you guys have to say. Um, so uh, John, what, a, what are your thoughts? Yeah. So um, <clears throat> I think last time I mentioned I had tried watching this before and I was in a state where I was like really tired, started watching maybe like, I think I got to um, part of the plot and I'm just already going to say like spoilers. If you're listening to this, I hope you've seen the movie. Uh, I'll talk about the details here. It really is. It's like like a visual experience. It's not really something that can be spoiled. I think. I mean, there are parts that were surprising to me um, that I did not want spoiled. And so that that's the only reason I put that out there. Um, but yeah, right around the time that Cleo's character finds out that she's pregnant was when I nodded off the in the first viewing. But uh, this time I had um, fully caffeinated body. I was awake. I saw everything. My eyes were open for it. My ears were open for it too. And I just loved, I loved the way that Cuaron did um, kind of messing with, it's like the media itself felt so well mixed together. Um that the parts of like the visual imagery that you would see uh, clashing with sort of how he did the audio style. Like we open on that scene of the water being kind of spilled down the drain and it sounds like the ocean and getting that clash of senses. I think that Kuran did, he did such a great job um, effectively bottling a movie that's like pure nostalgia and it not feeling foreign in any way to me. Like I was able to kind of step through the portal of the screen and listening to like all the audio. It just immersed me completely in the experience of, um, I think that Corona is also on, uh, on record as saying like none of the characters are, um, the focal point of the story necessarily. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of the scenes and the setting itself. Like the world is objectively just a place that you get to look into and watch all of these these stories play out and it just so happens that all of the narratives the way that they interweave builds the dramatic tension for you as you go and the emotional investment and i um yeah i i I just had i had a lot of thoughts on it uh but kind of initial take i just yeah i'm gonna watch it again i already know i am i knew when it was over it's the same thing with pig where i was just like that was good i'm gonna watch that i know i can come back to this um, but yeah, uh, you're welcome. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm about to not get a thank you in the next time around, but whatever, that's later. <laughs> Anyways, Ryan. Uh, so you ducked out just at the same time Cleo's boyfriend was like, no, yeah, I'm exactly, out of this movie. Yeah. Yeah. yeah whoops. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. So I watched this, uh, I did watch it with my wife. I watched it a late Sunday night school started. So I've definitely been tired recently and I did feel like I, might have gotten close to dozing off, but it did keep me gripped. And I initially the beginning, just the way the camera work is, the way it follows and tracks was really interesting to try to understand what 
Kieran wanted us to see or like how he wanted us to perceive that. So I was kind of gripped by that initially of just trying to see the feelings that were being portrayed before you kind of even know what the hell's going on. Cause it does feel like it's quite a while before it gets to like, okay, now we have a narrative, mm-hmm. so to speak. It's not necessarily like a clear through it's narrative. 30 or 40 minutes of just setting. And yeah. A lot of like before who, you get who these any, people are and yeah, yeah, trying to figure it all out. But he does a great job of like really quickly telling you what you need to know about the people and how they interact and these things that, you know, the sort of like, I agree with the focal point that we follow uh, Cleo, but we also follow the family story kind of to the side. Mm-hmm. And even further out, we can step back and see Mexico City's changes that are happening. Uh, and this is before like this area of Roma got hit by an even worse earthquake later and is like gone. Like all those buildings are gone. So they're trying to recreate kind of that snap window of his childhood that doesn't exist anymore. Um, And I think that really got across absolutely brilliant acting, absolutely awesome scenes. I actually think some of those things that I really liked in children of men um, that just were really powerful moments. There's like more in here, some of which, almost seemed to pattern <laughs> children of men. There's definitely like, there's some stuff that you know, there's some stuff that's really similar, yeah. right? There's like a birthing scene that feels very similar and is a long tense take. And there is like a, a person holding their son, boyfriend or whatever on the street, crying almost in the same way. That's like on the side while they're going by. So there are definitely some like nods, lots of animals, dogs and stuff too. So mm-hmm. it was a lot of like, it did feel like this is taking that director who I think started really come into his own in children of men. And then this is kind of that capstone of like all that stuff all put together. Um, it was really awesome. So yeah, I'd like to kind of like dig in more into particulars, but yeah, I, I liked it. This is, I agree with John. This is something that just like pig, I feel like I thought about the last few days, like more and then um, definitely want to watch again and get more like from it as I, as I, see things again and the perspective is even better. Yeah. Um, I don't know what you guys are talking about with falling asleep. I, I'm like just every time I watch this movie, I'm just gripped like into just totally <laughs> into it. Uh, it's definitely slow. Um, but not in a, uh, not in a boring way. I think it's a fascinating film throughout. Um, I think the, the, the opening sequence is that, that audio clip that we played at the start of the podcast where, um, the camera is just facing, tile in the driveway and just water starts to to roll by and they start to show the opening credits as buckets of water uh are just thrown across the screen and kind of almost fall like a a curtain down over the screen that is um you know it's cleo cleaning the driveway and it's it's kind of basically i feel like it's quaron being like okay now you're gonna get on my speed and my wavelength and if this is going to be a slow methodical movie but it's going to be beautiful and uh, i think that that really sets the tone so well for for the film in that uh in that opening sequence yeah Yeah. and i wanted to just speak real quick to that sequence because it's i mean i know i watched dixon you also watched road to roma Mm -hmm. and in that coron says that um that he began he bookended the movie where he started with you looking at the ground Mm-hmm. And but you're still technically watching the sky um, because you see the reflection in the water. But he was yeah, like, yeah, you look at the ground and you're getting a sense of reality. Like it's grounded here. 
And then we end the movie kind of looking up towards the sky and sort of this hopeful, like, you know, it's what's moving forward and what the future is. Um, and I felt that that, to speak to, to defend myself in saying that I fell asleep during it, <laughs> I wouldn't say that I fell asleep because it's boring. I'd say I fell asleep because it's really comfortable. Like, uh, I find that like anything yeah, okay. that's a nostalgia piece that. has a certain appeal to it. Like when I was watching this, I was reminded very much of um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It seems like a similar kind of directorial thing to do where somebody goes back, tries to make a portion of their childhood that... Um, actually weaves into history. They add particular fictional elements to carry it along, and then they present it to you. It's a very personal, very intimate piece. And anytime that I watch a movie that's like that, I feel very comforted because I, it feels like having an intimate conversation. You can just relax. And sometimes, like when I'm doing that, I'm just like, I'm just gonna close my eyes real quick and keep listening to this because it's really nice. Um, <laughs> and so yeah, it does have a very my... soothing sound design. Yeah, and there's no score in <laughs> yes, the whole right. movie. And it's all the sound design is is really intricate and like um, Coron said or uh, I, I saw this feature on the guy who did the sound and he said that they're they ADR'd every extra in the whole fucking movie basically like just yeah. brought everybody in because they Coron was like no we we're not gonna have just random background noise like I want bits of conversations going on so you feel like you're actually in this like room with 30 people and you can kind of hear everything that's going on and yeah. pretty fascinating the way it um, just really creates this realistic feel where it, it really pulls you into, to the movie. Yeah. He seems like the kind of director who treats his extras with a lot of respect and dignity and wants them to succeed in their roles because it helps him succeed in a lot of what we've already seen him do in children of men. And he wants to build out that background. He wants to make that world live. Yeah. Um, and watching, yeah, even Road to Roma had the behind the scenes where they were like, we went through thousands and thousands of women looking for Cleo, but we also that sounds, went through. That sounds bad. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. They, well, when they said it, it still sounded bad. They interviewed thousands of they, women. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. They didn't do the Harvey Weinstein thing. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. that still sounds questionable. Um, yeah. So, but they also went through they brought in like extras. They were looking at the photos of these extras. They wanted to find a face that matched an outfit that they would pick out for the extra too. They were like, Oh, you look like you would be this guy who has this job, does this. And it's, it's like synecdoche New York in a way. There's a weird, like I'm going to recreate my own small city. Yeah, version. That's interesting. Um, except that, you know, Quiron doesn't go crazy or isn't tied to any kind of death metaphor necessarily. <laughs> um, as far of. as we know. Yeah. As far as we know. Um, but yeah, uh, and just, yeah, I, you keep talking about sound and that's one of the things in the movie that I, I listen to it. I have a, um, Dolby Atmos system for it and it created like just a bubble. Uh, it's like probably the best movie I've heard on my system. Um, it's like felt like there were parakeets on my wall. I mean, I own parakeets, but they were asleep <laughs> at the time. And, uh, there's just like a bunch of other little touches to the audio that really immerse you. And it also like, he still continues to play with, like, he's taking you into like at the very beginning, he's taking you into those beach sounds to like ease you into it, but also to slow the pace and then visually showing you things that are like that. Um, but then later there's also a sequence where you get rockets exploding in the background for like fireworks and you have smoke and fire billowing on screen. And it, it really kind of, um, brings forward the image of a war of battle, but it's at like a family retreat. Right. And mm -hmm. they're just trying to fight a forest fire. It's just a natural kind of disaster caused by something, uh, nearby. 
Um, and so it takes this part where, and then somebody gets up front and starts singing a song as well. So there's like an interesting kind of aspect of, um, I was watching two movies at once at different points in this and both of them were running in parallel. Like they made sense what was going on. And one of them was like the meta telling me about something happening or evoking, um, historical imagery. And the other was still continuing on with the world that's been carefully crafted. Um, and I was, yeah, I think like even before that scene, I was gripped, but I just had to yeah. get, yeah, I had to get through a certain portion of it, of, of learning how the world was working and what, where I'm following the camera at. Cause mm-hmm. I think that perspective is, I'm not used to as many voyeuristic elements in a movie and Quiron really wanted to keep this one objective. It seems. I mean, yeah. So, yeah, let's so talk like, about the cinematography before yeah. we get into so far. Yeah, because I was going to say adding on that. So the opening scene, you follow Cleo from cleaning up outside and then like in through the house and all the way up the stairs through like all the rooms and then you follow her all the way back down. Um, in some parts, it employs really interesting camera work where the camera kind of turns in these really long angles yeah. to follow all the way around. It almost feels like you're just a person standing, just standing there, there watching turning yeah. and looking at everything. Absolutely. Which makes it feel like a memory, right? That you're like watching and you're following something, but all these other things are just sort of in your periphery. Um, I think though that that interestingly makes time flow at this same time that it's actually happening. Right. And that's sort of where it feels slow because you're staying with it so much and there's no edits. It doesn't have the normal, yeah, like you're pacing. not cutting between two sides of a conversation. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And so, and then there's shots outside, same thing where you're seeing, you see quite a lot. And so your mind kind of equates these things as like longer, slower than they would in other movies. And I think that's where it, it's awesome because it's very realistic, but it also, you have to wait for somebody to literally in the camera, walk all the way to the other side. And then the camera then follows them through and keeps them, in frame as the whole thing moves. So you sort of have to wait on the world to kind of catch up. So I do see that, that slowness. It took a bit for me to kind of get into, um, before you, you don't even know who the hell these people are. Right. right yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I think the, I had talked about previously with, with pig and with, um, children of men that like, I think, um, this, the style of cinematography where pig just isn't in one scene in the, in the bakery sequence, but, um, like adding intimacy, through physical distance is a like a really weird thing that seems like it shouldn't work, but it, it works so incredibly well. Like, um, you know, a lot of he's filming these really intimate scenes of, of people having these really heartbreaking conversations and you feel like you're a person standing 20 or 30 feet away. Like, Oh God, I shouldn't be here. Like you feel like you're looking in through their living room window and spying on them. And it, it creates this, um, like uncomfortable is not the right word, but it, yeah, kind of this voyeuristic feel of like, Oh, I'm, I'm listening in on a conversation that I shouldn't be part of. Um, and I think it's, it's just a really beautiful way to shoot the film and to create, um, an, an empathy for the characters. Cause you kind of see everything that's going on because the camera is removed shooting these wide shots and panning and it's not giving you like an individual perspective of any of the characters. It's kind of showing you everything unfold and you get to just kind of drink it all in. And uh, I think it's just a, a really fascinating way to, to shoot a film. Yeah, I also really appreciated the inclusion of different languages within it. Yeah. And the mm-hmm. way that that was denoted as well in subtitles was just, I thought, really well done. Um, 
I I haven't seen a movie that mixed um, Spanish and it's mixed tech, right? Mixed tech, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we hear the one guy sing in oh. Norwegian or Hungarian or something. Yeah, like yeah. something like that. Something like that. They didn't. I didn't. Get, There's a little bit of English too. Are there subtitles? Yeah, for them? English, yeah. No subtitles. No. 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 The, all the other languages are not subtitled. Just oh, okay. Spanish and mixed tech were subtitled. I gotcha. But that created more intimacy too, right? That you. I mean, it also shows the class system, right? That Cleo speaks Spanish around the family, um, but then with the other servant in the household, they're speaking in the languages comfortable to them, right? And that closeness that you're sharing with them those moments as well. Yeah. Um, and I know that uh, Quiron said that he discovered when they were auditioning for Cleo and kind of seeing the partner chemistry between the actors that was when they kind of discovered like, Oh yeah. Uh, wait, why don't we include Mixtech in this? Like it's it. Then, then they watched them have like conversations when they found out they could speak both languages. It was kind of just like a really cool organic. This movie has a lot of really cool organic, natural, like the organic developments, mm-hmm. um, in it. And I know, uh, again, tying it back to like once upon a time in Hollywood, one of the shots when they're on in Roma, when they're on their trip, it's before the forest fire happens. And they're doing that dolly shot um, while everybody's having a picnic. Some people are shooting. And uh, I think Coron said that, like, he wanted to take those scenes slower, like those dolly scenes, because it if you take, like, one take and you get something you like in it, then you lock yourself into the rest of what that take's going to be, and the continuity can get tricky. And I know Tarantino has said the exact same thing is what happened to him when he was trying to do the Spawn Ranch shoot. So when I was watching that, I was like something that I was also thinking about was like, man, how many times did they try to do this? How long did this shot take? Cause it all feels like it all belongs. And I didn't see mm-hmm. for a movie that was shot very impromptu. Also, I'm, I mean, I'm the main guy who like brings in all of the things that it reminded me of, and I'm just going to keep riding my neural <laughs> pathways, but um, like a Wong Kar Wai film, it was, you know, in the mood for love was shot kind of like day by day in this movie yeah. too. Yeah, there um, was it was nominated for best screenplay despite there being no screenplay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that that just makes it even more impressive. Uh, like it's yeah. just um, yeah, it's there were <clears throat> so many moments that I felt were I, I was like, oh man, this has great writing in it. This is good, like uh, you know whatever. But it's really just and it does, Quirone's but they're just like, kind of coming up with it as they, as go. they go. Yeah, yeah. it's just mostly Quaron coming yeah. up with it. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. it's my understanding they sh- they shot it sequentially kind of didn't tell anybody where things were going, especially mm-hmm. the actress that plays Cleo. Uh, thus, as we are revealed things, they were revealed to her, so her reactions are realistic. Um, it may be a better way than Hitchcock does to his actresses, oh, <laughs> where yeah. he surprises them with crap. This is probably better, where she's just going through the emotional weight at the same time we're going through the emotional weight. Um, and then, yeah, apparently give like different scripts in different direction to people, so they kind of didn't know... Like to the extras, he gave stuff and was like, oh, here's what you should be feeling. You have no idea what's going on, but here's what your uh-huh. day was. Like you're this guy walking along and then this happens behind you. Um, that's a really interesting like world building that he was trying to do. Yeah. I mean, people usually talk about world building in the context of like fantasy films. But like this is the probably the best world building that I've ever seen where he just like really makes you feel like you know this community and this family intimately and just creating this, this you know, recreating this world from 1970, 1971 um, in, in such a such a detailed way that it's just yeah. it's crazy. Well, I like the, one of the parts where I kind of really felt that is that 
um, when Cleo goes to track down her boyfriend and he's training with his kendo sticks and they have the professor, I forget what his last name is, Zaz or whatever, comes up and they say the name. I was like, well, why do we know that name? Who, who the heck is that? I don't remember that. And he walked up and I was like, oh, that was the strong man on the on TV. On a TV. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, okay, so we watched something on TV that then was a relevant character later. Um, that's interesting to kind of tie those things in. He was yeah. also a wrestler in real life. So. I mean, Drink. Moment. yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 it's Latin love, Latin lover, and Mexican wrestling. <laughs> Vicente McMahon. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of uh, Cleo's boyfriend, Fermin, uh, when we first yeah, we first meet him, uh, they're supposed to go on a double date with with um, Cleo's friend, who is an, also a servant for the family and, and lives with Cleo and her boyfriend. They're going to go to the movies and for me, it's like, Hey, it's such a beautiful day. Why don't we go to the park instead? And then it cuts to them at a hotel after, hey. after having sex and it's raining outside. Yeah. <laughs> like, and, and for me, is completely nude and decides to show off his like ninja moves and just yanks the shower curtain rod out of the bathroom and starts swinging it around like a bamboo shoot or whatever. And it's just like Dick flying everywhere as the shower curtain rods going all over the place. And Cleo's just looking at him with this like nervous grin, like, what the fuck is this guy doing? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely certain that the comment I made at that time was I was like, that's a way you hit yourself in the dick. I can tell you that any like trained martial artist would be like, you don't do. Nope, that's not how that works. That's going to be a bad time. (laughs) And he takes himself so seriously, like he's doing all these moves and he like sheaths the shower curtain and doesn't have a sheath to put it in. And he's he just like staring at her so seriously, like he's trying to perform for a general or something and she's just like so you you do this every day <laughs> yeah I, I do like those little moments right that's i think where as you're starting to get into that story for me and when they first uh he comes up and then they walk off and he like grabs the last of her drink and like chucks uh-huh. it down really quickly yeah it's so like these little moments where you get little bitty insights into kind of what this character is without being told, just seeing a moment there. Again, we lose Cleo for a moment and stay on for me and then follow them back out, like kind of right. interesting things like that. Yeah, and also like to undercut some of what he says later, what he does, how he said, undercut what he says in the beginning anyway. When he's doing his like performance for her and then he's done, he's like, I train every day. Martial arts like has made me a better person. It's my I'm life. I'm not going to be, yeah, I'm not going to be like the shitty people that left me in the position I was in before martial arts found me. And then he's immediately like, <laughs> oh, you pregnant? That's good, right? And they share a moment. And it's one of those things where like, again, this is a sequence where um, as an audience member, I'm sure a cynic would be like, that guy's going to leave. But I was like, oh man, that wasn't the reaction I expected because there was already a moment where like her, the family that Cleo works for they are like there were fights that you see happening at the beginning. They're talking about how like the dad is like, why is there dog shit everywhere? And that dog shits so much. How's it even yeah. possible? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's just just turns all over the driveway constantly. Cleo's always cleaning it, and there's always shit in it somehow. As as a person that owns four dogs, I have a Chihuahua that probably shits that much, and wow. it's amazing that those were like, massive turds too. Yeah, like, right. That a dog that small can go that much. Yeah, that dog should run for office. It's a good job creator. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, but you see these scenes where like she's either defended by somebody in the family or um, the kids are asking really sweet questions and you can tell like the endearment that she has. And there's a lot of her world that you get to see at the beginning that even though it's hard work, it seems like she has a sweet and supportive environment that she's in. Mm -hmm. And so whenever Fermin is like, that's good. And then they do like the head kiss, basically like they push their foreheads together and kind of sit there for a second. I was like, Oh, this is nice. And then he's like, I gotta go to the bathroom. And that was when I fell asleep the first time. So I never knew if he was a piece (laughs) of shit or not. And then, yeah, he never, when he never came back and I saw like walking out, especially into the, the harsh, loud, like environment right on the steps of that movie theater. I was like, Oh, that's extra harsh. Like you're, confronted with she must feel even more isolated and alone in that scene just kind of communicated it by using an excessive amount of audio from life like yeah everybody yelling yeah. and talking and these things contrasted with it and it was yeah it was just heartbreaking to see it um and i was like man i hope that for eventually realizes he just preached a lot of shit about being a better person and then wasn't and then when we see him later that he does not he has not no, learned a lesson stay. at all he has yeah, she she yeah. finally is able to track him down, and she's visibly pregnant, and and you know she's like, hey, like it, you know, the kid's yours, and he's like, you know, like what? No, that's not possible. And then he just says, "fucking servant," and runs off. Well, like, he threatens to God. beat the Damn. shit out of yeah. her. Yeah, yeah, he does that too. Yeah, yeah. and and then yeah, when he's running, he just does it. I was like, man, that's what a shitty fucking person. Yeah, um, yeah. The theater scene is just so beautifully done. It's. The contrast is is crazy because you know you're you're in a dark movie theater seeing Cleo and Fermin from a few rows behind them and they're making out and then uh, Cleo is like hey I got to tell you something uh, I'm late I haven't had my period I think I'm pregnant um, and there's this really serious conversation going on and meanwhile the movie is like <laughs> some most ridiculous war yeah. comedy that has like <laughs> some soldier that's cross-eyed that sees like two sights on his gun and can't shoot anything and there's like two guys kissing a nun in an airplane and it's like what the hell is this yeah. movie and it's just this striking contrast between this really intimate serious conversation that's going on in the foreground and this batshit weird movie happening in the background and then yeah he's like i have to go to the bathroom after he says you know oh that's good that you're pregnant and then she's like wait a minute the movie is almost over and he's like no i have to go and then just leaves and like they just hold on Cleo as the movie ends and the credits roll. And you just kind of sit there with her for a couple minutes as she realizes that he's not coming back. And it's just a heartbreaking sequence. To even add to that, the movie itself ends with several people hugging each other and celebrating. Like there's all togetherness at the end of that movie. And they're like, we all did it. We're all together. And you see all of the other couples in the crowd too. Mm -hmm. And you see Cleo looking and then not seeing and, just having to wait. And yeah, yeah, it's just, oh man, it's just, this movie was a series of like punches to my gut. Yeah. There's so many scenes in this movie that like would be the most memorable scene in 50 other movies. They're (laughs) like, there are like eight or nine scenes that I'm like, oh my God, that scene is just perfect. And it's just, that has to be the defining scene of the film. And then the next scene is even better. Like, yeah, it's crazy. So I, on that note, it, it does bring together two things. The, you do see couples like coming out of the, like getting out or, or staying together in the theater as Cleo is sitting there by herself later in the movie, when the mom reveals that dad's never coming back to her kids. And then they go sit outside and have ice cream in the background. A marriage is happening. Yeah. yeah. Right. So you get these kind of like 
juxtapositions of the differences in these lives. And you said that the family treats her well, but almost every time we see like an intimate moment, it's undercut by like the opposite thing. So they, they sit there and they're watching TV together and she serves them and then sits down and the kid puts his arm around here for just a few seconds. They have an intimate moment. The kid puts her arm around there and they're like, Oh, the, the doctor wants his tea. And she's like, okay, all right. And the yeah. kid's even like, she just sat down. Like, give her a minute. Nope, doctor wants his tea. And so, yeah, it's immediately back to that. At the end of the movie, she comes back, and the kids are like, yeah, she saved our life yeah. um, to their grandma. And the grandma's like, great. Can you go get some strawberries? Like, just immediately, uh-huh. again, sends her right off. So I feel like anytime yeah. we get close to that, it's juxtaposed with this, like, but she's still... But I, I mean, there's They're, still... Or they are treated differently depending on what... It's true, yeah. And it's it's one of those things where <clears throat> it is the class difference where they're like, but you're employed by us, so you should just mm-hmm. go do these things. And the family is at that point probably too conditioned into the habit of like, now I can just ask her for stuff. Just go get this. Because they also take care of her. They take her to the hospital. Like the, the mom, whenever she's like, I have to tell you something, I'm pregnant, are you going to fire me? And is crying. And the mom's yeah. like, no, I would... I'm not going to do that. Let's get you checked out. Like, mm-hmm. and that's just one of those moments where, you know, it, it shows kind of the color of the character. And you also get to see like the fact that the mom doesn't really drive too often when she gets the car stuck in between. We're barely touching on a lot of scenes that I want to get into. Yeah. Until, um, I, I think one thing I want to add on just generally to the conversation about uh, kind of Cleo and, and uh, the family and, and kind of the class difference there. I, I feel like uh, in, so in Road to Roma, the documentary about Roma, um, Coron says at the beginning that cinema and loneliness go hand in hand. And I was like, oh, shit, that's a really interesting concept. And like the movie, I think, is a lot about Cleo's isolation and loneliness like she has had to leave her village to come to mexico city to make money she doesn't have any family around her anymore she can't go see like afford to go see them she's living with the people that employ her she has to work essentially 24 7 her only friend is her co-worker and like you know she's is throughout the movie she gets closer to the family but it's like she can never fully bridge the gap between the the poor and the wealthy the the employee and the employer and even like the movie kind of ends on a happy note with her being like more accepted, like you're saying, Ryan, but like then I feel like the, the imagery of the ground and the plane in the opening and in the end is kind of this representation of, of this, this chasm between these two societies within the same city and even in the same house. And like, you just can't bridge that gap as, as much as you try. Yeah. And that, and that makes perfect sense. I mean, you see the reflection of the top of the building in the, the actual ground as the water's being poured onto it in the beginning mm-hmm. at the end, it is the clear view of looking up still, um, and seeing it and <clears throat> kind of what the, the difference in height and distance is between those kinds of classes and where, what you have to do to get to that point. And yeah, like she's never, even though the kids have told her that they love her, that's like genuine kid love. I'm sure that that's not like, they're not like, we love you because you get stuff for us. They seem to genuinely have. I'm clearly Coron really loves yeah. her. And right. Yeah. That too. And, yeah. and, so there's, there's those things where like, there's genuine appreciation being born out of it, but also like, yeah, the older, the adults themselves are like, well, you're employed by us. And even when I was watching it, it was one of those things where it was like a misleading argument for capitalism for me when I was thinking about it, because and Dixon, I know this is your ballpark. Right? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Cause the whole time I thought about it, I was like, 
well, that's nice that employers treat their employed like that. <laughs> that seems like how all jobs are. And it's just like, no, this is this seems like more of an exception, if anything. And it's still not what it could or should be. Like, yeah, like you were saying, Ryan, they undercut a lot of those sequences of her being an actual individual who's helped greatly with a lot of things. Um, they're like, go get tea at this point. Go do this at this point. Like any of those um, requests they have. Uh, completely override and overrule whatever good she does for the family. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's like a bittersweetness to it too, because it, it feels very similar to me conflicting in a way that like perish social relationships with celebrities do where you're getting something positive sort of, but it's also like you feel like you have a friend, but they're not your friend or they're not your family, even if you feel like they are. And that it can just be emotionally damaging. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, those those are things that like went through my head when I was watching it, uh, thinking about that. Yeah, I think it's interesting that like she goes up to the roof, right, this to do the laundry, and in the background you see all the other roofs and all the other servants doing their laundry. It's just really interesting, like community that's happening on the rooftops right. where they they're can see all level. the other servants yeah. and have conversations with them, and they're doing their jobs over there, like just while all of the, you know rich upper middle class people really just never go up there and have no idea kind of what's going on with this like little vibrant society happening above them on their laundry room rooftops. And then that poor dog, which is what I wrote down in my note here, Boras, they keep saying his name or whatever, but don't give a shit about that dog other than cleaning up his shit. You constantly see him trying to get out that door, like right, trying to escape, I guess in the same way. And then they just hold him, throw him back in. Like once he gets kind of down the street, but somebody grabs him and brings him back in. And that's all we get at that dog is him trying to go and get out that door, taking craps because there isn't any grass, mm-hmm. it appears, for him to even get on. No, yeah. No yeah, yard. doesn't get to come in the house, and that's it. That's that's like his whole life is trapped in that little space. doesn't get to go anywhere else. The other family, their cousins that they go and visit – when their family dogs die, they taxidermy them and put their heads up on the wall. Yeah. That's wild. And that was <laughs> nuts. And she stops and like stares at him for a moment. And it just like, even that to be like, they think that that's like something nice to do for their pets, but it's not like, it's really fucked up the way they see yeah. them. And they're like 15 dogs. Heads yeah. There are a lot of dog heads wall. up there. Yeah. Man. Um, yeah. And, and then to add to that, something I noticed being a bird lover, they have budgies like nailed to the walls, uh, not, yeah, not the birds themselves small. nailed, the yeah, cages the nailed. Cages. Yeah. And the cages are very, yeah, small. the cages small. are very small. And, uh, that was like the first thing Sasha watched, like the first five minutes of it. And she was like, well, that's depressing. And she got up and left. Oh, and I was no. like, no, come uh-huh. back. The rest of it's also going to be depressing. <laughs> <laughs> it gets worse. Don't worry. <laughs> I think, uh, John, you're talking about the car. I think, the, the car is a really fascinating kind of representation of the, the marriage. Yeah. Between Would you say it's a good vehicle for the marriage? Oh, oh, there you go. All right. <laughs> I thought uh, you were the dad, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, so there's, like Ryan, you were saying, kind of Cleo is in the, not the literal foreground, but her narrative is is kind of in the foreground of the film. And then you get kind of bits and pieces of conversation. Like you hear the end of some conversations mm-hmm. between uh, the husband and wife that she works for Antonio and Sophia. And clearly things are not going well between them. And the car is, is a really interesting representation of that where like you first meet Antonio 
and he's driving this. He has this massive Ford Galaxy, and he's trying to fit it in this tiny driveway, and the driveway is, like, walled off, and they have to open the gate, and he has to drive in, and he has to be so careful. And there's this classical music playing, and it almost feels like a dance as yeah. he's trying to get the car, like... You know, in there, and he's he'll kind of bump his mirror and then back up, and it's clearly like a really difficult parking job, and he's just so careful about it. And then, uh, you know, later when he he leaves, and his wife just like deliberately drives it between two yeah, trucks yeah. because she just is mad at him and she yeah. wants to fuck up his car. Yeah, at first I was like, whoa, what the hell? Like she's just like didn't see those cars or something or what? And then when she comes home, she just purposely like scrapes it through the garage. Uh, I was like, Oh, she's yeah. just like keys along the, the side of it, like done with him. Oh, even when <laughs> she drives between those trucks, she's smiling. Yeah, she and smiles. then the drivers get out yeah. and they're like, what the fuck? And she's like, eh, sorry. You know. Yeah. I was, I was very like, yeah, I was initially very confused by her nonchalance about it. Yeah. Cause I thought I was like, Oh, you know, like uh, I, I know some people who don't know how to pump gas anymore because they haven't had to drive a car or something. And I was like, yeah, maybe she's uh, you know, she just hasn't driven in a while. Don't know how to gauge the space. And I was like, Oh, that's a yeah. sad moment. But then when she got out very casually and locked the door that already had scratches on, I was like, what is anybody going to take from inside that car? Like, <laughs> what is this? <laughs> um, it's interesting you talk about the background of that family and the, the divorce or, you know, or separation, whatever you want to call it, and sort of the, the fall of that family because we also see her being terse with the kids and the distance that begins to happen there as well before, you know, they, they seem to reconcile more at the end. You do see this from like a kid's point of view or someone who is listening in where right? you hear one end of a phone conversation or you have these weird things like where when you see the husband leave, they go out and have this weird moment where they're saying goodbye and she like hugs him really weirdly intimately for him taking like a week trip. And then it's like, we'll be here. You get the feeling that she knows. He's and you're not like, coming yeah, back. you're like, whoa, something's way different. You yeah. don't exactly know, but you know, something is different. Uh, and then it, later it pieces more in where you're like, yeah, he's not coming back. But you're like, why is he not coming back? Is he actually in Canada? Like all these things that you don't really know the truth until mm -hmm. it starts to unpack later. And so it does feel like that recontextualizes you pick up new information that maybe as a kid you're like well i know something was wrong i know dad was supposed to be gone for a week but it's been like three weeks and mom made us write these weird notes to him i don't really know what that was about right you just sort of know something's wrong in your uh -huh. gut yeah yeah and i think that this movie because of the voyeuristic angles of it because of that because of Quaron wanting to thoroughly seat and ground you in one position only though. There's something I noticed about this, which is that uh, I'm wondering, I know there's a lot of like Oscar categories for, um, we've already talked about sound a lot, but there's a lot of Oscar categories for like sound effect, best sound, all this stuff. It's it, like it's a actually sound, just one now. Is it they, just one? They reduced oh, it they down reduced to one, one, I think last year. Is it sound cinematography? Yeah. Because sound it should be called sound cinematography. <laughs> and I want to coin that term as when the sound is so good that it fills in all of the other visual gaps you don't have from what's mm -hmm. on screen. Because when I was listening to any particular scene, seeing kids run by any of that, I can hear them. My mind is actively visualizing where they're going in the house and it's so flawlessly done, but um, kind of talking more about what this movie's given me because of that is um, it allowed me to experience denial at several points, which other movies haven't as much you experience like a meta denial where you're like, Oh, I don't want the narrative to go that way. I want it to be this other thing. It can't be true. 
But in this case, yeah, witnessing the dad get like that weird suffocating hug from the yeah. mom and witnessing um, Cleo being left in the theater alone, I wanted to assume that these people would come back. I wanted, I had the kid's view of like, well, they're coming back. That's just a weird thing, right? And then when they don't, or when it's revealed they, that they've they gone do, to live but not the something, way you wanted, yeah, yeah it, it's even more like heartbreaking to me because I feel what the family feels on screen, and I also feel the actual emotions of like, what the fuck? This character betrayed me. <laughs> I wanted yeah. them to actually come and do this and and stand up and do the right thing. Like watching Fermin say like, I've been disciplined because of martial arts, and then seeing him undercut it, I was very disappointed and heartbroken in that um outside of him just becoming like a complete monster and threatening to beat cleo it was like there i mean there's so many mixtures of emotions i felt throughout it i feel like quoron did such a great job um trying to evoke those at different points in the movie too even using the ocean waves at the actual at at the actual beach veracruz i think was yeah yeah like there i was like Oh, my brain was already remembering the beginning of the movie because of the sounds. And I was trying to think of what it was going to evoke and watching that. Um, uh, yeah. Can we talk about that scene? Actually, the wait into the beach or Shoot, let, you, let's, let's wait hang, till right, late. We'll I, I feel like there's other scenes that we should hit. All right. Well, let's, then, uh, that's yeah, such I'll a, like that. the climactic scene. Yes. Um, I think, uh, you know, building on the, the scene of the dad leaving, um, this feels like a really, therapeutic film for Quaron, like kind of reproducing these events from his childhood. Um, and in Road to Roma, the documentary, he talked about filming that sequence and he said he was just really mad that day and he didn't really know why. And he realized, he realized it was because he was filming this scene and, and he was uh, giving advice to the actor who played Antonio. He's like, you know, you know, you feel really suffocated and then you get in the car and you start to feel a little free again and you drive off and you feel a little bit better and he said, you know, then we got it and it, it worked. And I just realized that I filmed the scene of my dad leaving my family and I had never thought about his motivations before. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. Like he's probably a, a character that Quaron has demonized his entire life, rightfully so. And he is forced to reassess it from his dad's perspective because he's making a movie about it. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, the whole creative process of pulling things out of yourself and maybe confronting right things that you've put off. And I think he said that he wanted to make this, this movie and this story kind of the whole time. And this is when he finally felt like he had all the tools to pull it off. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he emphasized wanting again, because we've already talked about all of the scenes kind of being a day of shooting and day of kind of reveal for motivations for characters. Um, he wanted it to be as close and honest as it could be in performances. He talked about in road to Roma, he talks about wanting um, the actors to bring the part of themselves. I thought that he was very attentive as a director. This is just outside of this movie and his entire filmography. I assume this is how he's done the style, but he always wants um, a piece of personality from the person that is acting. He doesn't want to completely control them. And in this, especially he was like, I want to give you the story we're doing, but I also want, um, I, I want you to bring part of yourself into it to realize what it is. And that was like something he talked about playing into scenes where he filmed the kids. And especially I know with kids, it's kind of hard to get the performance you want out of like a child actor. I would assume from a lot of the movies I've seen 
from Hawk Jones to <laughs> whatever else has an all kids cast. Um, the Florida Project. Yeah, the Florida Project. Uh, you Those you are have like these two kind of like two ends of the, ends of the spectrum. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and so it was just nice to see and and to think about like watching this that you're not only witnessing the memories that Quaron wants to replicate from his own mind, but there's also like a communal aspect to it where the cast and crew were also contributing to the art design and the decoration of the, the recreating Mexico, uh, Mexico city streets. And um, then you have these actors who are bringing a piece of who they are, like honestly to this performance. And it's not, and that's what makes, I think like it's such a powerful movie overall. It really does feel like a team building, mm-hmm. even though um, Corona is, you know, the vision, there are a lot of hands that contributed to it. Um, and it, and it makes it so masterfully done. So well done. So powerful for that. Um, yeah, I don't know where I'm going with that. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I think that you've seen a, in other movies when they actually do film it that way, where the cast is together, they actually do bond through that process. So you do get that where they're getting closer. They're getting a better feel for each other as the movie goes on. I'm sure that like actually happened. And then that actually gets conveyed. Yeah. That pure chemistry, not, uh, Yeah. Not the crappy chemistry you've seen from other movies. I was going to just name drop one. I don't know if I should, but Aqu- oh, well, Aquaman. that's your thing. So. Aquaman. Yeah, Aquaman. Yeah. I mean, Ryan slept through it. But twice. Yeah, twice. <laughs> but you know the chemistry. It's not great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's the, the chemistry. Uh, like, it really has to be there because of the way these scenes unfold. There are these long takes with so much going on. And, you know, there'll be a three, four minute take of you know, five or six different people moving all around the house and having all these different conversations. And, um, the, the next scene I wanted to talk about was the, uh, the sequence where, um, Cleo tells, uh, Sophia that she thinks she's pregnant. And, um, that scene is just this really long take where like there's kids playing outside and the hail and the rain. And then the camera turns back into the house and you catch the tail end of Sophia telling her mom, that she can't get a hold of Antonio and she doesn't know where he is and what to tell the kids. And there's these two major emotional events happening in that scene where she's dealing with the loss of her husband. And then Cleo has to tell her that she thinks she's pregnant and they're both going through these, you know, really scary events. And, you know, meanwhile, the kids are all running around drawing pictures and, uh, like that's when she asked him to hail. Right. Yeah. He's like, I got more hail than you do. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, she asked the kids to write letters to their dad and tell them how much they miss him. Like, oh my God, that's like that's like her last ditch effort to get in contact with her husband. It's yeah. just so heartbreaking that she can't even process that until she has to deal with Cleo, uh, you know, being pregnant. And that that scene is just so intimate and and beautifully done. And it's so complicated. I, I, it's a, a miracle that I think they they pulled that off. It's it's just insane. The part with the kids as like a parent nails like a perfect feeling where the mom is like hey you need to write these letters and tells them like here's what i want you to do here's what i want you to write and then the older ones are like i'm gonna go do it upstairs she's like no 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 fuck it like she says this moment of like "Ah, i'm not gonna get that under control and then the younger ones come back and show her the letter and didn't write what she wants the same thing of like all right whatever like she's at that point where she's been so emotionally drained through all of this that the kids are starting to go and do their own thing and she's losing control of it. Um, it was really interesting to see that in that moment of just like, I can't even get them to do what I want them to do. Like, I'm sure that also is 
a tough feeling. Yeah. Uh, but then, in, interestingly, on, uh, it does undercut that moment that she's dealing with asking her about the pregnancy. Her immediate thought is, I'm going to get fired. And we know that contextually that means, like, living on the street. Like, she's not yeah. going to be able to do something else, especially as pregnant. And that's her thought of, like, I'm going to lose everything I have for this. Um, and then it's undercut with, like, hey, go get the kids. Like, again, hey, we're going to do this thing. We're in it together. Go do this thing for me. Yep. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know at this point if, if we're taking this to court, if I'm, like, trying to defend the actions of a family that has employed her. I, I don't think it's no, just they're doing the wrong thing. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's just the nature it's of that relationship. It's the nature of how they it can, is. Yeah, they can yeah. love her and care about her, but it, at the end of the day, they're yeah, the yeah. employers. I, I love my kids, and I tell them to go do stuff. Like, they're yeah. completely in my and, and, well, that's, that's kind of like what I'm trying to think about is, is in – these particular segments of undercut is there is there a build in the tension that's related to this or is there a deflation of the tension that is embedded in it where things go back to normal in in for a second in the normal sense of it being like okay to, even though she's going through this even though uh, like Cleo has a baby on the way and and Sophia has a marriage that is crumbling um, there's a brief moment where they both like are employer employee and it's mm -hmm. interesting contrasted to the emotional aspects that are wrapped around it and everything that's happening in it. And yeah, of course, like we're not doing defense prosecution sort of thing on it, but <laughs> after having to say several times to me, like, I don't know if it's undercut. I'm trying to, I feel like there's something there that I'm trying to pry at. Um, but I don't know what your thoughts are. on. I think it's just treated absolutely realistically like this is not yeah. something that is putting any of this up on a pedestal and pretending that you know that things were great when yeah. they weren't or that maybe she went through these hard times but our family was great to her like it just sort of presents it as it is everyone all kind of all the sides of it um which i think is what's great and so i think that the fact that it doesn't suddenly magically become you know what any other movie with this kind of plot would be like oh and then we became an actual family they become a family, but it's still not yeah. quite as you would want it to be. Like you were talking before, it's not quite what you would want it to be, but it is what it realistically would be. And then I think it also just reinforces the fact that even at the end of the movie, we still see that she hasn't, Cleo has all these forces acting on her, you know, biological people that are controlling her, the, you know, earthquakes, hail, whatever, like physical properties of the world that are problematic political things that are going off in the side, right? There's all these forces that are out of her control that are keeping her in that place. Yeah. Um, and that even at the end, maybe she's has more perspective and has moved forward a bit, but she's still not in the broader world. Yeah. Well, I mean, you could, we, we could kind of pick apart like what the symbolism of that, that end sequence is to kind of relating to that where, you know, she may be looking up at the sky, but she's still standing on the same ground that we saw at the beginning. You know, there's still kind right, of Right, she's not gotten out there's, yet. Yeah, so the, there's that kind of um, imagery to it. Um, it and Coron has said that he wanted to talk about race and class in this movie and that, that dynamic of indigenous domestic workers and European upper middle class people that employ them. And I think the the little moments like that where they're like, yes, we love you, you're part of the family, also can you go make me some coffee? is like a way to just constantly remind you of those differences. It's not necessarily 
an indictment on those characters for treating her that way. It's just how things are. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I just had when, Ryan, when you were telling me, and you're talking about how it might be the conventional ending is, um, I just had a flash of like a Disney movie version of Roma oh, no. and it was a nightmare oh, no, no. <laughs> where they end it with like Senora Sophia gave me a raise and said that I was a very good yeah. like helper for doing this. And then they would show like a freeze fame of the family and she's in there and they're all hugging on her. And then they run like credits and show them playing and having fun now and yeah. all those other things to be like, stay where you are. But yes. like, <laughs> also Antonio would have died yeah. in the Disney oh, yeah. yeah, off screen never would have known about it. <laughs> no, he died. He wouldn't Not have been, because un- he had he a been unfaithful. Yeah. He would have just died. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the benevolent monarchy that Disney keeps pushing. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, uh, I, 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 Magic like, Kingdom, baby. Yeah. <laughs> you're like a side. There's that TV show, Princess Sophia, where she's like a like low class girl, but her mom ends up marrying the king. And they show all the servants as like, it's like the Beauty and the Beast. We're like, they're happy to be uh, serving in this world. Uh, and there's no question about the class. They are absolutely there. And it's like, that's the best thing in the world to be the, the maid for the king. Oof. Oof. Um, so Dixon, well, what, what's the next thing you want to talk about? Uh, obviously we have to talk about the ducks fucking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you guys noticed that, but uh, when they're on their like vacation for Christmas and new year's, they have, you know, it's actually really interesting. Again, kind of class uh, dynamic where, you know, all the families live up in or staying up in this big house and having this party and stuff. And then below, like mm-hmm. in the basement there, all the servants are having their own separate party um, and they have to walk down this really long staircase to get there. Cleo and uh, one of the other uh, servants. And there's a bunch of animals just running around at the bottom of the staircase. And in the foreground, there are two ducks just fucking <laughs> going at it. Yeah. I was about to say, just like Titanic until you said the ducks. Like, fucking yeah. Part. <laughs> um, yeah. Again, there though, that class distinction, like they're down there with the animals. Yeah. They, in the same way they like get kicked out of the house, like a dog or like, Hey, you're not supposed to be in here. We're, we don't want to see you. Uh huh. Yeah. Which I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously those German shepherds that are at, they were German shepherds. They were German right? shepherds when they yeah. got out. Yeah. Um, they, they get to run in the forest and everything, but then I, I guess they get like that narrow hallway. Yeah, they <laughs> must they have a hallway they in. get to take shits in. Yeah. They, <laughs> <laughs> they'd, be, they'd be good friends with the it other seems to be dog. standard practice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, in all seriousness, the, the next scene that I wanted to talk about was the, um, the scene in the furniture store where the protest is, is happening. I think that that is one of the most incredible scenes from a logistics standpoint. Um, and it, it's actually set in a, they basically rebuild that furniture store that was there at the time. And um, Cleo and uh, the grandmother of the family go in to buy a crib for, for Cleo's baby. And the shot is from inside the furniture store as they're talking to the sales clerk. And then they pan around to the window and there are just thousands of people in the streets. And there's this student protest going on that I believe it was like a pro-democracy protest. And the um, like the militia group that Fermin was a part of is uh, essentially being used by the state to quell the protests and, and yeah. attack them and just brutalize these these people. And the camera keeps turning around and it comes back into the furniture store and you see Fermin and some of his friends run in and just straight murder a guy in the store 
and then Fermin is, is literally pointing a gun at Cleo as she's standing there pregnant and her water breaks. And it's just like a, a really long take where there's just so much going on. There's literally thousands of people in the shot. And Corona is having to direct and shoot it at the same time. And it's, it's, it's such an emotional scene. And I have no idea how the fuck they <laughs> pulled it off. Yeah, I, I remember I remember seeing in Road to Roma like that he had to get on a loudspeaker because they half of the crowd did like the wrong cue at one point and he had to wind it back. Uh, I'm like, man, that is really hard to wrangle that many people, especially when one person is probably like, what did he say? Go. <laughs> and then they're like all go. We've already like, used all the yeah. blood packs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we, we have, yeah. Charlie's just fucking dead here. <laughs> we like, accidentally trampled him. Yeah. yeah sorry. <laughs> like, um, yeah, that scene, I remember thinking like, okay, there's a giant crowd in the streets. They're going to buy furniture. You see him walk Something by is the going militia, like go, sitting there waiting. Yeah. yeah. I was like, I don't know if I'm ready for whatever's about to happen. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I did, I did a little bit of research before this because I knew, at least on this, this, this watching, I knew it was based historically on some events around the 70s. Um, it was basically like... Yeah, I think in 68 uh, there was an event that happened where... I think it was 71. I think um, it was... Well, yeah, the movie itself was 71. But I actually there think there was two. Or, in one oh, in 71. Yeah, yeah. One in 71 and 68. Yeah, guys in kendo sticks ran into the Attempted to... Yeah, yeah like a, I think the, the Mexican citizens wanted to, a democracy. The students did. Um, and that there was an actual militia of... of other Mexican citizens trained to beat them down that what was known as the dirty war, um, a civil war at that. And it was also the case that the government and the right side, the people with the kendo sticks were f- potentially funded and trained by a U.S. Yeah, individuals as well. Yeah. The CIA <laughs> was involved is, in that. Yeah. Incredibly that is, unsurprising. Yeah. Unsurprising. Yeah. Um, we hear yeah. for me and talk about like an American. Yeah. The Americans been there for like a week American, or two yeah. weeks, but they, the Koreans knew. The Korean. Yeah. And like, yeah, I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's that same kind of thing. I'm going to keep like bouncing back and forth between this and once upon a time in Hollywood where I feel like that's the fuse. If, you see for me and talking about like, Oh, they brought in an American, they brought in this and you know, it's 1971 and you're somebody who lived through that, that you have a sinking feeling in your stomach when you watch this. But if you have mm-hmm. no knowledge, you have no idea what's going to happen yep. and it's going to just completely wreck you. I think either way it can be a really traumatic experience in the theater. Um, when you're watching it, just seeing that level of chaos and carnage and the fact that Quran uh, is also really just an excellent director at selling how realistic all of it is and how it happens. And yeah, there's, I mean, there's several movies that make me cry because of watching the atrocities that humans can commit. And this is one of those where like I could do nothing but weep while I watched that. Like it just hit me really hard to think about everything that had been set up and also that it's historically just a thing that happens. Like, man, um, it's such a, it's such a, just an amazing sequence. And like when they're leaving the, the furniture store, they pass by these two people laying in the street and this, this woman just weeping over uh, you know, this man who is clearly dead and she's just screaming out for help and just crying over this guy. And there's just no, there's nobody to, to help out. Everybody else is hurt. And, you know, like there, nobody can do anything. 
And he does the same thing he does in Children of Men, where he kind of just hangs on that for mm-hmm. on that same kind of sh- shot where they had in yeah Cleo and the grandmother leave the scene and he just holds yeah on and he them. holds on that in the same way it happened in Children of Men when they're leaving the building with the baby and it hangs on right. the exact same thing somebody else that's died that's being held that way so yeah his kind of focus on this like horror Look of those moments yeah the results and the sort of like inability to actually do anything at that point right. Yeah. Um, and that was kind of okay. I don't want to, I don't want to, I'm actually Quarone, but I have to <laughs> because when I was watching Road to Roma, he was like, I made every shot different. I didn't steal from any other cinematographer. I wanted the shots to be my own, but that shot is a shot he stole from Children of Men. <laughs> right. Was, from he was not himself yeah, and from, from yeah. himself and Lubinsky. Yeah. But, but still, <laughs> that technically wasn't your shot, Quarone. <laughs> <laughs> It also seems to be invoking, uh, like, is it the pietas yeah. of the statues where yeah. uh, Mary is holding Jesus's body. It, it's framed very similarly to that. Which there's a lot of that artwork stuff in Children of Men that's referenced. So mm-hmm. that m- makes a lot of sense with all the artwork references and Jesus references in that movie. Yeah. Um, and then including it here, it has a, a little bit different but similar context. Yeah. Yeah, and and then you know the movie just really never lets up at that point. Like they're yeah, they're, they're they're trying to get to the hospital because Cleo's water is, is broken, but they're stuck in all this traffic because of the protests, and so it takes them forever to get to the hospital. And and um, they get there, and um, Ryan, you mentioned earlier when uh, the grandmother is checking Cleo into the hospital. I thought it was just this really um, interesting scene where she doesn't really know what to do, and she's talking to the the nurse at the counter. And the nurse is like, what's her middle name? And she's like, I don't know. Uh-huh. Like, well, what's yeah. your relationship with her? I'm her employer. Does she have any family here? No. And it just, it, it again, uh, accentuates the isolation where, where Cleo is just alone in the world where she has people that care about her, but nobody that she really is on the same level with that is a true friend or, or family member that can be there for her. And she's just kind of stuck in this environment that she can't control and all these things are happening around her. Yeah, and that scene with the grandmother too, like just watching her slowly b- catch up the trauma and the stress of everything, catch up to her. I, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, she just sort of breaks such down a into phenomenal tears. scene. Yeah, of her standing at that receptionist desk and just breaking down slowly, but trying to keep it together to get something else done. Um, it's I don't know. It just there, I had no words for how a lot of the aftermath of that furniture store scene played out. It. Just, yeah, it's immediately one of those things that I was not going to sleep anywhere around that time of the movie. Yeah. Um, I was past the comfort and the nostalgia of the world. I was thoroughly rocked into a state of like hypnosis. I just couldn't look away from the screen. I wanted to know and I wanted to see how things were going to happen. And then we get our second kind of children of men sort of pull yeah. in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, albeit it, he he followed through. The, the man himself, he committed. Yep to um, having the baby come out stillborn. And that was just heartbreaking in a mixed amount of ways because I could tell Cleo kind of didn't want to do anything with it, but she was going to stick with it and see it through. And for me, it was not. 
obviously. Um, and then when the baby came out and they're like, I'm sorry, the, the doctor Dude, says that doctor something is like no good. Yeah. <laughs> His bedside manners. He was so casual about, I'm sorry, but your baby's dead. <laughs> and the the it, dissonance between yeah. like that shot is it's a really long take and mm-hmm. Cleo is in the foreground and, but it's showing her from the side. So you don't really get a face close up, which you, you never really do in, in the movie. Um, and she is just in in anguish and just this raw emotion that's just pouring out of her contrasted with just the cold calculating nature yeah. of the medical staff that seem to not really give a fuck what she's going through yeah and it's it's just so that contrast is so striking in that sequence yeah and, and that you have the same tenseness that you had in children and men of like what's gonna happen is the baby alive like same kind of feeling except it doesn't resolve with the with the baby being alive it it's pretty horrible and pretty gripping. But then, yeah, the coldness is even further in, like, just the way the doctor talks to her. But then is like, hey, do you want to hold? I think he says, it. do you want to hold it? Yeah. And she's like, yeah. And he gives her, you know, a last chance. But then almost immediately is like, we got to take it back. We got to prepare it. And, like, pulls it away from her. Yeah, she gets just to hold her as baby as for, like, five it. seconds. Yeah. It's like, no, I need to prepare it. Give me the body. Yeah. And then you just see him wrap it up in the background. And just, like, her, like, inability to control this inability to understand what's going on even yeah well, he also doesn't he also he's, he's like do you want to hold it then when he gives it to her he's like yeah it's a girl and he's just yeah like, he goes yeah it's a girl yeah and it, like walks away and it's like then we need it back we need to prepare it yeah like, yeah. it's like uh yeah that was the one thing I, I was like man that doctor is too cool he's too cool for this yeah <laughs> He needs to at least have some compassion or something, but he was, I don't know. Like the, that again, it's the world building of like, what kind of day does this doctor have? I wonder what kind of direction he was given to be in that scene. Like, all right, this is like your 300th pregnancy delivery in like however many months or something. Like, you just seen this all the time, whatever. And you know, that, that kind of attribution of like, here's somebody who has, uh, their water has broken under duress. They've also witnessed a murder. <laughs> um, and all of those things, much like with the grandmother, are catching up to Cleo, and she's just having to also push a baby out, and that overwhelming, you're just overstimulated at that point, and there's not much that can you can do. There's also um, a bunch of injured people all over the hospital yeah, from yeah, the protest. Like the whole lobby is filled with bleeding people and all yeah. just all this stuff, and she's just having to, to witness all of this. And yeah, it's and then right before she pulls into the birthing room antonio shows up mm-hmm. randomly just like the worst possible so like that's the last thing she needs oh, yeah. right now is to have to talk to that guy and he's like hey you're gonna do great this doctor is great she's delivered hundreds of babies um she won't let me in the delivery room but you'll do fine and then the doctor's like no you can come you can in if you in. want and he's like, like oh no, no i have an appointment, appointment. and then yeah. just disappears doesn't show yeah. back up the rest of the movie yeah <laughs> I was I was still having those moments because of earlier um the the earlier sequence where they're about to go to the the theater i think with the yeah. kids and they see antonio running through the streets with his mistress and they're like hey that's your dad and the one kid's like that's not my that's dad my, that's not, my dad not yeah. my dad at all i was like that's not it was that's not their dad it was that's yeah not their dad. <laughs> yeah well because you see it for so, yeah. a fleeting moment and you kind of yeah. have to process it the same way of like whoa was that the dad i was like yeah. i could have rewinded and been like was it but yeah definitely yeah it is um that was a so, yeah, tense when, scene where she loses a couple of the kids run ahead as they're going to the movie theater. Really cool shot too. That's a tracking shot from across the street. Yeah. So all going. this crowd that she's going through and she's looking around and can't tell and then gets to the street and has to wait. And you do have the same feeling of like, 
what's going to happen? Like anxiety, what happened? Where did they go? Like you, you really feel it with her. And then to get there and be like, Oh, thank God the kids are there. And then the dad runs by and it's like, Oh crap. (laughs) They just saw their dad and know that they can't talk about it either. With this younger woman. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's like, that's also kind of a foreshadowing thing to the beach sequence Mm -hmm. um, where you also see their dad. I'm just kidding. That's not actually what happened. (laughs) He swims by and you're like, oh. Uh, (laughs) um, Yeah. Talk about the beach sequence. Yeah. The beach sequence. One of my, uh, honestly, yeah. Like you said, Dixon, it's the climax, kind of the climactic moment of this movie. Um, Even though there are so many moments within it that could easily be that, um, this scene where, they all go to the beach. Uh, this is like after the mom has around the time the mom's delivered the news, right? Or is about yeah. To so the mom says we're going on a vacation yeah. to say goodbye to your dad's car. <laughs> yes, I bought a new car. We're gonna go say goodbye to the galaxy. The old, yeah, the old car, and then takes them out to dinner. Tells them the tells news. Tells them at the at the dinner table. That, tells that them dinner the news. sequence briefly is is so good. Like she's yeah trying to deliver the news that their dad has left and is never coming back with a smile on her face. And you can tell she's kind of trying to fight back the emotion that she's experiencing. And Cleo is just sitting there wanting to disappear just really awkwardly. And the kids just start weeping at the table. And then the waitress comes by and she's like, do you want dessert? We have chocolate ice cream, vanilla ice cream. Starts reading off the list, just not reading the room at all. And then hard cut to what you were talking about earlier. Yeah, Ryan, them sitting out there. They're all kind of crying <laughs> into their ice cream cones, sitting under this giant crab statue out <laughs> yeah. in front of the restaurant. And there's all these people celebrating a wedding in the background. And just the, 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 the contrast like that in so many scenes of this movie is just incredible to see just the, the dissonance between the foreground and the background and, and yeah. what's happening. And I feel like that's... <laughs> Uh, I have to respect Quaron for this is when he's bringing this into um, t- contrast to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where Tarantino invents two characters that can be badasses and succeed in their jobs um, in in a stellar fashion, sort of um, <laughs> like this big send up to them and trying to celebrate them and kind of glorify that area uh, that that era. Um, th- this has a very it has a bittersweet meditation on it where like you can tell that these moments are precious to Quiron and these, these, the, the environment around him is precious to the cast and crew, but he always injects a, the undercut that we've been talking about this whole time in it that like you may be in this story with these characters, or you may be one of these characters in a story, but you can know for sure there will be other characters of other stories coming in and out of it that don't give a shit about what you're going through or what's happening with you. And he constantly hits that. And that's the most, like, I guess that's the key to a lot of the realism in it is having these characters that are cold and removed from situations being dropped into them um, from the outside extras with all this direction uh, and surrounding your characters with those characters too both enhances that feeling of isolation that they have and also accentuates a lot of the drama happening for these characters. Um, and reminds you like, Hey, you know, I, I feel like each time that there was that reminder, it's that same thing of like, uh, somebody else saying like, well, you shouldn't be mean to somebody. You don't know what they're going through in their day kind of thing. Um, obviously it doesn't beat you over the head with that kind of mentality or that ideology, but, uh, it, it just, yeah, kind of rang true to me is these are like the whispers of Quaron being like, Hey, life's, still out there going on doing all these other things and um you're just getting bits you just, and pieces yeah you just get the bits and pieces where you can and when you interact with other people just know they have similar thing going on yeah so 
But then, so then getting to the beach scene after getting the news the last day that they're out there, yeah. uh, decide to go to the beach. Kids are going to play in the water. Mm-hmm. The mom is constantly telling them not to get too far out. Every parent's nightmare. Yeah. And uh, needs to go look at the tires or something. It was kind of one of those yeah. like, what? Um, Cleo at the onset had told them, I think when they first get there, they kind of go look at the beach and Cleo's like, won't even go put her feet in the water. She's like, I don't know how to swim. Yeah. So then the mom is like, oh, the kids are there. Cleo, can you watch them? I'm going to go kick the tires on the galaxy (laughs) before we leave. And just immediately my mind goes, they haven't been able to control those kids this whole movie. (laughs) And if anything, they've been worse as of late. I was like, those kids are going to fuck around in that water. Like they're not supposed to. Yeah. And yeah, sure enough, like you get this like tenseness of following Cleo, like the the waves and the kids are off to your right of the screen as she walks further left with one of them to wash some mud off of him, I guess. Yeah. And, the, and the camera is on a track that has to be hundreds of feet, like going way up to yeah. the top of the beach and way yeah, out into really, the ocean. Yeah, really Just crazy. An incredible shot. Um, yeah, really crazy how they do that because you yeah you follow all the way up the beach and then all the way out part way into the ocean. Um, and yeah, sure enough, she gets up there, starts yelling at the kids. She has to run all the way out there into the water, into these waves, uh, that get way over her head even at a point. And then one gets a kid, gets the second kid, essentially drags them back up. And I think through the whole thing, I was just like, these kids are dead or something. Like you've already just been so down in all of this. And, and the camera's stuck on Cleo, so you don't know what's coming you, in front yeah, of her. You, don't you have know. no yeah. idea if the kids are going to be there when the camera keeps panning. And you see them both for like a second and then immediately get pulled back under again. So you don't even really get a chance to see anything solid and really until they're like out of the water and they're like falling and coughing. You're like, okay, whoa. Like it's just super tense. Yeah. And, and just, yeah, my eyes were darting side to side, scanning that that ocean, like those waves. I just wanted to see where they were. And had that moment of holding my breath and just listening at the same time, you know, you're being forced to listen to the soothing sounds of the ocean (laughs) that you get to hear at the beginning as well, kind of, um, in, in sort of fully fashion. Um, and it was just, yeah, it was such a kind of powerful tie in, uh, for me to, I don't even know that there's a way for me to properly phrase how I felt about it. It just, it hit a number of senses in my head both like listening to the waves, seeing the tension, knowing kind of predicting what future might be had. Um, and also the way that the dolly moved, the steadiness of the shot. Um, it's that slow methodical pull. It much like the tide of the ocean is pulling you out to see too, to see what happened. Um, and I just, yeah, I, at that point I was like, I, I anticipate tragedy. Like I, I don't even think technically I feel like the poster for Roma could be a spoiler. Isn't there a poster of like all the family hugging on the beach? Mm-hmm. Just that moment where like, okay, if that was in the movie, I would know that these kids make it, but I did not think about it because the filmmaking was so stellar that even if somebody had shown me that case, like right before the scene happened, I would forget about it yeah. immediately. Yeah. <laughs> there would be it's no way. such an engrossing scene that just pulls you in and you just kind of forget yeah. everything else while that's going on. Yeah. And, and so I was super relieved when the kids were alive. Um, that I didn't have to be depressed. 
that this movie didn't have to have that in it as well. Um, <laughs> I was like, cool. I've only taken, I've, I've taken so much of, of the negative aspects of humanity and, and life. I don't know if I can handle this. And to see them all hug, I was like, oh, this feels nice. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's such a beautiful shot too, because you have the sun right behind Cleo, pretty much the whole shot back and forth. And then they all kind of collapse in like a kind of a mob hug on the beach. And the sun is kind of shining through the cracks in the bodies and the arms. And Cleo is just, just breaks into tears. Like she's finally letting herself deal with her miscarriage. And she just, just blurts out, I didn't want her. And uh, Sophia is like, wait, what, what are you talking about? You, you got the kids. We're safe. We're here. She's like, I didn't want her to be born. And then everybody just kind of hugs her and cries for a little bit. And it's just such this, such a touching sequence. Yeah. Yeah. Followed by then you get her like sitting back at the house. Like they've obviously returned and like that actress, like all the emotion without saying anything just in her face of her trying to like process all of this and like get up and move forward. (laughs) Yeah, and just taking her time and you just know exactly all the things that have happened and and all the feelings that she has. Um, But yeah, no, very, very powerful, like almost a cleansing by the ocean in a way, but still like having to move forward. Yeah. I mean, for me, that's one of the most memorable scenes in any movie that I've ever seen. Yeah, absolutely. And just, yeah, like how it's pulled off again. This is a, it's interesting seeing digital effects used. There's some careful digital effects here. Uh-huh. Talk about once upon a time in Hollywood. You hardly notice they're it's done it's so, so well. so careful and yeah. used in just the right spots. And so, yeah, you, they use it somewhat to, because there's a bit where the wave kind of acts in a way that kind of cuts over the camera to make you also feel like you're going through it. And then, like, all the waves are digitally edited higher to make this look worse than it is. Oh, I didn't know that. In the way that it was shot. It's still... The actress that plays Cleo can't actually swim. Oh, really? Yeah, so it's it's a bit scary to put your actress out there in, in a situation like that. Um, and she's in the waves, and she gets up, but it's not as high. So they digitally edited it to make it gotcha. look like it does. Um, but you couldn't tell. Like, it's, no. it's waves. Like, it's easier when you're just sort of, like, copying yeah, water and just bringing it up, up higher, yeah. right? That's yeah, sort of easy. like a Photoshop will let you just keep copying stuff that looks essentially the same. <laughs> <laughs> No, but yeah, to, to pull that off and that shot, that like tracking long shot to, to pull all that off is really awesome. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Was there another scene that you wanted to talk about? Anything after that? Uh, the only other things that I had written down that I wanted to talk about were, um, you know, we talk about the level of detail and what's going on in the background of every shot. Um, there's there's one scene where, where Cleo is trying to go find Fermin, and there's literally a human shot out of a cannon in the background yeah. of a scene <laughs> that is like, what? Like, that that would be the focus of the scene in any other movie by any other director. Except you would for get Brisson. a close-up on that. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. Brisson wouldn't have that in his movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In any other movie, that is is front and center. And it's like you hardly even notice. There's some weird kind of festival going on way in the background of the shot, like on the horizon. And then right before the scene cuts, you see hear this explosion. You see a man just shoot out of this cannon and land in this net way in the distance. <laughs> Wasn't it like, I thought it was like a political rally or something. It, I feel like the words that were being said before that man is fired out of a cannon are like propaganda. About, oh, yeah, you're right. We're going to help your water system. We're coming out to help the infrastructure oh. here. I know y'all have all 
had problems. Let's have fun. And the cannon fired. <laughs> <laughs> Who's up next? Yeah. <laughs> um, um, and then the only other thing that I, I had was, um, did either of you guys try to stand on one foot with your eyes closed after you know watching I did. the movie? I, well, I tried to do I've it during. I've done it before. I'd already done it before. I tried to do it during, and I ran into a shelf. <laughs> uh, yeah, like the the you know wrestler guy is is saying like, oh, you know, I'm going to do this incredible feat, and he just puts his arms above his head and closes his eye, or puts a bandana around his head and just stands up on one foot. Like does a tree pose, yoga tree pose. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and everybody's like, what? And he's like, what? Are you not impressed? You're witnessing an incredible feat. Why don't you try it? And then everybody. Tries tries it and it's like falling all over the place and then you see cleo in the background just doing it like a stud just yeah. <laughs> nobody else can pull it off <laughs> yeah that was something i learned back in biology that like your mind can't handle balance if you can't see the world around you yeah i i uh i, I tried it the first time i saw the movie and i like would couldn't at all and this time I, I tried it and i was like i could get like four or five seconds and then i would <laughs> then i would fall but yeah um it's interesting, Ryan, that you say that. I was just like, what about blind people, though? Like, they, they can't. They naturally pick it up. Yeah, it's, naturally it's, pick yeah it up. so it has to do with, like, your sure. ear equilibrium and your mm-hmm. body. Like, your, that equilibrium resets. If you lay down for, like, expended, you know, experience time, like, a long time in a hospital yeah. bed or whatever, you stand up, you have to, like, regain that balance. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of constantly reset uh, in your life. So if you do keep your eyes closed for a long time, it will balance out and you'll be able to cool. to do it but it yeah normally you're just your body is using like everything it's taking in to keep All your balance yeah so when you close your eyes it's suddenly like whoa wait a minute wait a minute it doesn't have anything to like register against nice um i wanted to talk real quick one second we um had mentioned well maybe this was in a different segment i don't i don't even remember if we have talked about this on the podcast but at some point i wanted to do pairings or talk about movies that would pair really nicely mm-hmm. um we've kind of mentioned it with pig i thought about tempopo a little bit yeah um you for, talked about once upon a time in hollywood once a lot upon with a time this. in hollywood with this but i actually don't want to recommend once upon a time in hollywood as the pairing for this i want to recommend a contrast to it um for those that are interested it would be a really heavy double feature <laughs> but i do want uh Ilium Klimov's come and see to be Ooh. a yeah. double feature for this film. And I will explain why um, it is the exact opposite of how this film was done, where Quiron did uh, an objective interpretation of a historic event. Um, Klimov did very much a subjective retelling of communal trauma uh, in the Belarusian genocide. And so um, I feel like a lot of the shots that are in Come and See are shots you will not find in Roma and vice versa. Um, you'll find those isolated one-on-one shots, those very intimate shots with the characters in Come and See. And in Roma, you get the more detached and voyeuristic views and angles. Um, you also get extended shots for tension. And there's just a lot of history wrapped up in individual versus like communal trauma uh, in both of these. So those, those are the two movies that I kind of wanted to recommend. And I thought about um, constantly while I was watching this in addition to once upon a time. Um, But yeah, I don't know, Dixon, what do you think about that as a recommendation? Would you say that sounds like it? Yeah, that's, that's definitely an interesting pairing. I I would not have thought of that if you hadn't mentioned it, but um, yeah, very, very different filmmaking styles. And they both talk a lot about, human hardships and the things that we go through come and see is like explicitly about war and the damage that it does in particular to children. Um, you know, it's a pretty tough watch, but, um, I think there are, there are a lot of, uh, interesting things to, to compare and contrast between those two. 
Yeah, I saw it over there on your Reader's Digest large print notes. <laughs> my, my old over. man notes. <laughs> and I saw, I saw that John down there. John has the eyes of 20, a 78-year-old. 28-point <laughs> font, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> and I that's saw, just for the basic paragraphs. <laughs> yeah, I saw that down at the bottom, and yeah, immediately I thought of, like, shots of faces. Like, yes. yeah, a lot of very close-ups. much get their faces, the reaction to their faces. Which I would say the only thing you get here is, like I said, at the end with Cleo, where you do get a moment where it really is just her face in frame at the end before she gets up and, and goes into the house. Um, that and then the sequence in the hotel with Fermin, you get like a Oh, well, close. yeah. You get yeah. a lot of Fermin that you'd rather not well, see. Well, I mean, with, on the, the <laughs> counter shot But you do get the counter Cleo. shot on her, yeah. which is actually the only time you get an edit. Right, it's actually forth. going back and forth uh, between two people. Apparently, because yeah. she didn't want to see him naked in the filming. Wait, and so so oh, she's reacting to him in underwear doing the exact same take, <laughs> and then he's naked and doing it just to the camera. That's hilarious. Um, I was going to say, it would it would feel kind of awkward if we just watched. It would like feel humorous in a weird way to me if we watched him do that routine, and then the camera the slowly side. has to pan around oh, yeah, <laughs> to yeah. reveal her. Yeah, from the side or even dead on, and it just pans all the way around yeah, to her face. She say to nothing. Yeah. <laughs> she like reveals that he's doing it by himself. Um, but yeah, no, come and see. Also very powerful. Uh, yeah, but also very sad. Uh, but I do see what you see that that it's a different take on how you follow those characters and and see the things unravel. There's a lot of implied things and things in the background as well, but almost in a different way. Yeah. from this where here you feel like there's the things in the background, but you do have a sense that it's that world. And those people know it where come and see almost has things in the background that are not being confronted or not there, right. For the people necessarily, or they know, but they're not acknowledging or, or understanding. Um, so yeah, no, it's, a, it's an interesting pairing. That's a stiff, that's two liquors in a row. Yeah. No, that's uh, two liquors. Yeah. That, that's <laughs> the only thing that's kind of hard about it, but it, it does provide that if you're looking to get a contrast in the actual technical cinematic, like aspects, yeah. it will give you the starkest contrast of yeah. what you can feel in two movies. It, it's almost like trying to say like, you, you know, would you like to pair this bourbon with this, barrel proof scotch like yeah. something that's like way more intense and a little bit different like a different flavor but like it just way stronger you know? are you sure that the it's... same thing and we made two different <laughs> yeah. yeah are you sure that it's not more like pouring scotch into vodka yeah scotch like <laughs> certain directors certain auteurs <laughs> love to do in their movies <laughs> um, um i think like yeah going on that uh talking about uh pairings there there's a movie that i really love from 2020 that nobody saw called song without a name that was my it was my number two movie from 2020 and it's very similar to roma it really reminds me of that so if, if you love roma would highly recommend checking it out it's also shot in black and white it takes place in in peru and it follows this this very poor woman who lives on the outskirts of of lima and who gets pregnant and and kind of the complications that she has to deal with uh roma is shot in ultra wide and song without a name is in four by three um it's a little bit different um, approach and it's a little bit more stylized than than Roma is where Ro- Roma tries to kind of be ultra realistic it's a little bit different in its approach but they they remind me a lot of each other and it's a, a movie that I really like and and kind of really flew under the radar nice 
Cool. Um, so with that, I mean, it sounds like we're all on board with saying recommend. Uh, is there anybody who wants to say no <laughs> to that? <laughs> uh, I will say I watched it with my wife. She did not fall asleep. Her diagnosis at the end was, I wrote it down here, slow and depressing. Um, she did say it was better than a lot of the stuff that we watch, um, but she did like Children of Men better, um, I think, out of it having a an early and clear through line and staying kind of tense the whole time where this one sort of builds to that eventual tension. I get the impression that this is a movie that I think a lot of people are like, what the fuck? What was this? Right? Like afterwards, mm -hmm. uh, I think this is one of those that people, some people will see and say, oh, this got an Academy Award. Or, you know, was nominated for a whole lot of awards. And they go watch and be like, what? What the hell? What was this? Like nothing. I don't things happen, but I don't really get it. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's an artistic film that's not going to be your beat for beat Oscar Beatty kind of thing. Right. I don't think it's quite to that degree where it is just like artsy, but mm -hmm. I think you have to be like sit and sit with it and kind of be ready to experience it. So, yeah, I'll say Darla gives it a mm. <laughs> but I think the rest of us are like, yeah, it's really great. Yeah. One of the thoughts I had leaving the movie leaving my room when I watched them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I didn't go anywhere. Um, was, I was like, man, there's somebody out there who was like, why didn't Roma just kick that Furman guy's ass? Or <laughs> it's like, Cleo, that's not mean, a, that's no, no, exactly. Yeah. That's what I mean though. Oh, yeah. Somebody like, would be out there and be like, why didn't Roma do anything about it? And it's like, that's not her name. Yeah. I mean, I, I absolutely love this movie. I highly recommend it. Um, I, I think like, you know, to your point, Ryan, like my, my parents saw this and then were like, why did you like this? And I was like, well, it's, it's amazing. It's so, so impeccably made. It's such a beautiful film. And I, I think it's like, you know, if you're expecting a traditional Hollywood film, that's not what you're going to get. Like, I feel like with, with every movie that you watch in order for you to appreciate what it does, you have to be willing to meet the movie where it is, you know, and the, the, the movie establishes very clearly, as we talked about in the opening credits, like this is movie is going to take its time and be a just kind of slow, meditative, beautiful experience. And if you're here for that, we're going to give you a, a really great, uh, a really great movie. And I think you just have to be willing to uh, to do that and to to meet the movie where where it is. So, I mean, yeah, I think that that's something that we we've talked about it. I don't think in any of the recent episodes, but that's something that like I've been trying to hit on and, and get to a core of with how I feel about film is that there is give and take when you sit in a theater. It's there, mm -hmm. there are, there are popcorn films, you know, fast nine is not going to teach you something. It doesn't necessarily have a message other than like family's important. Sure. <laughs> but, uh, but going no, does to space doesn't really make you, you, yeah, it doesn't really convincingly <laughs> teach you that. Um, and then there are other films that have something personal and like a message that they want to say. And I think that like film in general, is, it's like having a diet. It's like having your own diet. It's anything else really you, in moderation. You kind of balance, go and see this film and maybe make yourself like a deal. Like, okay, I'll go see this other film and I'll give this director a chance. See something you like and then try to see something from a director you're not as familiar with or that you don't really agree with at times and see how it makes you feel. Uh, and that's kind of the experience of film is like, hey, there's a bunch of people that worked on this and they're trying to 
bring you this experience. It's mm-hmm. not an experience that you want to eat. We're not having mac and cheese tonight, everybody. <laughs> tonight we're having like a salad with something else. And you're supposed to experience the different flavors that somebody else is bringing to you. Um, yeah. And that, that's been something that like we've talked about a little bit. And uh, I think that's very important to just emphasize that like, yeah, if you're going to do a movie, try to give the director the benefit of your doubt, I guess, to like, you know, they're not trying to waste your time. They're trying to tell you something. They're trying to have a conversation or to show you something. Um, don't write them off immediately. Yeah. And I think, you know, like I have, I didn't used to approach movies that way. And like you, I think you gain that as you watch more movies, you know, and, and the more, the more movies that you watch, the more you realize like, oh, they can do different things. It's not like, um, you know, like I, it kind of baffles me when people and I, you know, again, I, like I used to be, be like this, but like, you know, you buy a ticket to a movie and you go and sit in it and then you don't like it because it doesn't meet your expectations of the things that you want out of a movie. And it's like, well, like maybe that means the movie wasn't good, but it could also mean that it was just trying to do something different. And you have to kind of give every movie that you go into a chance to, uh, you know, kind of tell you something new and give you a different experience and, and perspective and and try to see things from that director's perspective and what he or she is trying to do. So what William Friedkin said to those people that walked out in the first 15 minutes of Sorcerer. Sorcerer yeah. <laughs> so like, I oh, was just this is a foreign movie. I'm done with this. Yeah, and I, was, I was like, <laughs> says the guy who told me that I could say I recommend half a movie and then told me it was a cop out. <laughs> I did say that, yeah. I'm also a dick, so, um, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, I think you're right. Like, right, different... Different movies bring different things. I, I think that this one, even if you're like, ah, oh, movies are artsy, it's a foreign language films, black and white. This one isn't actually artsy. It just is things happening. Like it really is life happening, which I think is really interesting. It's captured and mm-hmm. it may be slow and depressing, but honestly, that's a good interpretation of life. Yeah. yeah, like it's kind of just a thing that keeps going and it's often depressing. I think that that's where you get a lot of that clash, though, is people walk into a theater and they think this is a black box where I will have an escapist experience of any kind. Mm. And they're like, but I don't want to escape to the things that make me think terrible Challenge things myself or bring or feel, me back yeah. to reality. I want to see Thor smash Hulk's face or something. And then they're friends at the end, no matter what. Like, I want to. I want the, I want the theme park ride. Keep bringing it back in Scorsese Mm -hmm. just for you, baby. I want to Uh, feel like there are stakes (laughs) temporarily while knowing that there won't be. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah. Uh, anyway, so yeah, we, we all recommend this film. Um, we recommend you give it a chance, give it some time. Um, and with any other movies that you go and see, you know, you, you have an experience out there that you get to have with, um, a director with a whole crew that have made something for you, um, just to share it and see if you like it or not. And if it challenges you or not. Um, and so kind of hit back on that, but yeah. one, one um, more thing real quick yeah. before we cut to break. Um, there was one thing I, I saw in uh, the Blu-ray special features that I thought was really cool is that Quarone really wanted to make sure as many Mexicans as possible could see the film and him and his producers went on this massive uh, journey to try to get it shown in as many theaters as possible. And they went to like small towns that had shitty old theaters and refurbished old theaters just so they could see Roma in the best possible way. And for, for towns that were too small to have a movie theater, 
they drove around Mexico for months with a, an 18 wheeler with a massive cab on it that would fold out into a 90 seat movie theater oh, nice. with a big screen and Dolby sound and everything. And they were just trying to show it to as many people as possible. And they're talking about all these experiences they had with people just absolutely loving the film and, and seeing a story put on screen that they could relate to and understand these things that they're going through like not just people in mexico city but going all over the states all these little towns mexico is a massive country like to have that dedication to to getting it shown in you know in in a really great way on a, on a big screen with big speakers to people out in the boonies that don't have a chance to do that i thought was 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 really cool so just uh uh one one more point there there to end on yeah yeah Good note. And that's, that, that is an awesome trivia fact. Like I did not know that. Um, very cool of a director to do that. Um, but yeah, and with that, we will take a break. From the innovative minds that brought you breathing comes the next major evolution of the human experience. Are you tired of not going anywhere? Are you sick of staring at the same four walls all day, every day for the entirety of your existence? Are you curious to discover the world that resides just outside your door? Ask your doctor if walking is right for you. This cutting-edge technology was developed in an ancient Mesopotamian cave by the world's leading ambulologists, and it's revolutionizing the previously sedentary lifestyles of bipedal beings all over the world. By placing one foot in front of the other and repeating that motion in a steady cadence, most humans are able to achieve forward momentum and travel to new exciting places. Before I tried walking, the only people I ever saw were my parents. Now I can walk to my grandma's house whenever I want. I didn't even know I had a grandma. I used to roll everywhere. My office is only a mile from my house, but it took me three hours to roll there each morning. Now that I've learned to walk, I'm not constantly covered in scrapes, bruises, mud, and animal feces, and my wife's less ashamed to be seen with me. Two years ago, I was a 600-pound virgin. Then I started walking. Now I'm down to a spelt 485 and the ladies can't get enough of it. It's true. This is one time I was at the supermarket and a woman said to me that Try walking today and see how it can change your life. Side effects may include muscle soreness, sunburn, loss of balance, xenophobia, shattered fibula, cardiac arrest, death, and meeting people you dislike. Do not attempt running before learning to walk. I wish I could do that at the eye doctor so I could just cheat on my eye exams. Yeah. You I, can don't, do it, I don't know what it is about that. There's such like a weird point of pride that I feel in going in and being like, I can read that. <laughs> and, and it's like, I struggle through it. Like I think the last like time Hans, I went, I Hans broke, Hans I, I broke like a sweat trying to eat <laughs> e, 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 <laughs> chicken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You do what my grandmother did for years. You never go to the eye doctor and then you wait in line a couple times at the DMV until you can memorize what the little thing is. <laughs> so Excellent. You can go up and say it really quickly. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. Uh, before we get to our next segment, which is recommend or refute, you all know it. Uh, you all love it, I hope. Um, everybody loves have, it. Yeah, there we go. Just assume <laughs> confidence is what you want. We've got a, a bit of um, listener mail. Voice oh, mail, I was going to say viewer something. mail. That's yeah, viewer. It could, viewer you could mail. say viewer mail. But reader, I don't, reader mail. Yeah. Reader mail, something kind of that universe mail, whatever <laughs> we coined. Hey, guys. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Had a question about Battle Royale and your thoughts if maybe there was a mistranslation. 
So in the sequence with Shuya's dad's suicide, I did notice that there was a phone on the floor by the toilet paper. And I'm wondering if maybe the intent was actually to demonstrate that he had just found out that Shuya's class had been selected to participate in the tournament while he may have been using um, the toilet and was so uh, distraught that he wound up hanging himself, um, which would also explain why he had written um, the encouragement for Shuya on the toilet paper roll right before he hung himself. He didn't want to witness his son's death um, if that happened, but he also wanted to offer encouragement. The only issue here is that Shuya states it was his first day of seventh grade. So is this a mistranslation? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, like that... Do we, do we want to... Reveal but, the, the, way, identity the, the identity of, of the person listener. calling it. Well, I only know them. I know them by voice and also because they texted me. Uh, <laughs> it is, it is my very own um, blood. My, my kin, my brother, uh, Mark, and he brings up an excellent point. Uh, something that would add a lot more gravity to that scene um, and make it a little less absurd and confrontational in the way that we had discussed it. Um, and I, I, I don't know. Like, yeah, there, there is that inconsistency. I don't know that it could be a mistranslation though. I'm not entirely sure because battle Royale took a long time to come to the States to be Westernized uh, as it were and translated. And, and so I feel like there would be some care and attention put into how that translation played out. Um, however, the proposed theory is very enticing as something that would give it a lot more gravity and a lot more drama to it. Um, but it's kind of, kind of pass it off to Ryan. Yeah. I, I don't think it's a mistranslation that is not something that's in the book. So there's not an immediate, like I go look at the book and be like, Oh, this is what happened. And it's more clearly explained. I haven't read the comic, so I don't know which that the author did as well. If, if that same scene existed in there, I, I had looked into that scene before cause we had talked about his pants being down. Um, but it, it appears mm. that, <laughs> and that it seems like he came from the bathroom. Yes. Um, he didn't hang and himself then, with and his then belt. Came on the bed. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it looks like he's just, came out of the bathroom and then, and then hung himself immediately. The phone is there. Obviously he spent a long time writing on the toilet paper. The whole thing is weird, but Shuya actually transfers. He's going into seventh grade. And then we do see later that he moved and transferred in as an orphan somewhere else, which is how he met one of the other students that he Nobu. ends up going with Nobu. Mm. Yeah. So I don't think that he was in the school that actually ended up. It's, it's hard to tell exactly but he at least took another year before. So it's possible that his dad had found out, but it'd be weird that you would like call and say, Hey, your son's going to get picked up by the battle Royale next year, like a year from now. I got a year to say goodbye to him. Well, yeah, go ahead, John. I just had a thought about that actually. So <clears throat> you have a father who has found out his son's class is going to be enrolled in battle Royale. Um, the only way to get your son out of it is to transfer him in classes, commit mm. suicide, make him an orphan, and then push him into another class. And you just hope on, you know, it's literally the trebuchet of like, I hope that wherever you're going, it's not going to be here. Um, and the irony of that narrative being that he does end up in the, in a class that does get picked for battle Royale. Like it's hard to escape that. Um, but anyways, Dixon, I, I just wanted to interject real quick. Oh yeah, no, 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 fine. Head. Uh, yeah. Um, Mark, thank you for the voicemail. I think that's a that's an interesting point. I feel like uh, we're kind of stretching to add meaning to such a weird fucking nonsensical weird. Yeah. scene. Um, if he had his pants on, I would have a lot fewer questions. <laughs> and sure, yeah, maybe it was a mistranslation and he just found out. 
I don't like sure like it, it looks like he died from autoerotic asphyxiation I don't know if he was turned on by the uh, idea of his son doing well and that's why he was uh, you know had encouraging words on the toilet paper or, or what the hell was going on in that scene but honestly like that is the most confusing scene in a movie I've seen in a very long time and I have no idea what to make of it I I think that yeah maybe maybe that that's what, what they were trying to do um, I don't know why he would not be wearing pants yeah, in, in this, that scenario. Yeah. And he, like, he did have boxers on, but I assume that's what they were implying, that he was rubbing one last one out on the way, <laughs> on the way out, <laughs> the way to the other side. Uh, yeah. He, <laughs> this perplexion uh, coming from a man who has seen the movie Butt Boy. <laughs> we, we were talking about this. Um, which, yeah, if you want to go look that, that plot up, you're welcome to, uh, that movie is, is crazy. Um, absurd. it makes sense in its own fucked up weird way. It's really dumb and, and <laughs> stupid. Uh, this one, you know, it's like this, <laughs> this scene in battle Royale, John is losing it. Uh, this scene in battle Royale is so different from the rest of the movie. Like it just doesn't make any sense in context. Like butt boy is insane, but the whole movie is that way. So you're not jarred by anything. Yeah. Um, and this is like, oh my God, what the fuck? He, he died. He hung himself with his pants down. What the hell is happening? And then they just, nothing is like that. The rest of the film, they don't address it again. And yeah. Well, I think it is like somewhat presenting the weird world that's going on, the sort of like collapse of civilization. I think it's a bit of that where we see some things that are just kind of crappy. Simplest explanation his dad's lost his job, which I think we know from mm. context clues knows that like he's not gonna have anything to to live for it looks like a society where if you're not on top you're on bottom like there's not much for him to do he's not gonna be able to raise his son and i guess is trying to be like i'm out i fucked up i'm taking the easy out and but you can do great son and like puts up the banners of like have fun in the next grade i know you can do it I can't. I'm out. Banners being toilet paper. Yeah, the banner being the toilet paper. <laughs> well, you know, he's he's low low cost reuse. Um, and so yeah, I think it's like almost just like he's on the toilet, knows it's over, goes and hangs himself, doesn't even have the decency to pull up his pants. Um, writes a note to his son on the thing that's right next to him, and then it's just out. Um, but yeah, I like the idea that maybe he did find out and thinks either he could change it or somehow affect it or just can't deal with it. I don't know. Yeah. I very, I very much appreciate Mark's effort to try to figure out to what's going on in that some, scene because yeah. I, I, it just baffles me and I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we're the only one. I think it's a scene that it, I see a lot of posts that are like, "What the fuck? <laughs> Why are his pants down?" Um, yeah, so we hope that that has thoroughly answered your question. It uh, hasn't. Uh, I, let's yeah, be clear, it, we did not I answer will, anything. Uh, we're just more confused. Yeah, now, we're, just, we're as confused. I will track down the manga and see if that scene is in there and see if we can uh, yeah. maybe find another piece of context from that. John, author. you took like one or two Japanese classes, right? Do you know, do you know what the word for seventh and ninth is? Like maybe well, we can yeah, actually yeah. figure I mean, this out. Ryan and I both know yeah. seventh and, and ninth. And yeah, kind of no, like, I think he says that. Yeah, like he's, mm-hmm. it's, it says ganbate and it's going into seventh grade. So I don't think it's a mistranslation. I think the only thing it's missing is like, why the hell? <laughs> yeah, I, w- I will say yeah. if we want to talk about like why somebody would do that in in a Japanese film, um, if you've seen something like Tokyo Sonata in the Japanese culture course that I took at UT, we had to watch Tokyo Sonata, which is a great uh, a great film. 
um, kind of exploring some of the themes of like Japanese work culture and the salaryman attitude that's been introduced to Japan since the U.S. occupation after the war. Um, there is a tendency to fixate on success. And if success is not achieved in a line of work or you are put out of work, um, there, there was a period of time where there were high trends of suicide. There were um, murder suicides that happened um, between couples who just thought they, they couldn't take life anymore. And there was a lot of it uh, that, that kind of impacts how, um, how that culture uh, has developed within like economics and, and its capital kind of system, how, how the industry is built up. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of different ways we could excuse it away or explain it away. It's still not clear parts of even it. after our, yeah, parts of it. It's still not clear. I do appreciate it though, brother, uh, you, you doing that, uh, <laughs> trying to, to help us stretch to reach meaning. It's a valiant effort. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, and I really should have said brother in like a Hulk Hogan voice. Yeah, brother, uh, yeah. brother. <laughs> yeah, brother. Um, but yeah, anyways. Uh, so yeah, if you have any other questions about other movies we talk about, feel free to, to call in. Um, uh, yeah, do you want to anybody. tell people how to, uh, how to yeah. send us voicemails? Yeah, if you want to send us voicemails, you can do it through Anchor FM. Uh, the link is in our description on various our various social platforms. Um, we have, I believe it's N-O-T-U-T, pod yep at yep. n-o-t-u-t pod and uh, email address knights of the underground table at yep. gmail.com that's correct the first handles for twitter the gmail itself of course obviously gmail um as and, a, then, and i will clarify again night as in the opposite of, of day not as in british douchebags yes, with swords yeah <laughs> thank you very much for doing, it's becoming a call sign really. <laughs> i don't i don't want you know some random other podcast to get our fan the, email yeah. you when know. you review green knight uh, as in uh, yeah. british douchebags with swords <laughs> opposite of i'm just imagining <laughs> that podcast where they're like today we're going to talk about chivalry and <laughs> yeah. importance of a, a palm handle uh we have a listener mail here what about yeah. a man's pants being down in the suicide? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And Instagram is underground table uh, podcast as well as Facebook has kind of same handle. You can find us there. Um, so yeah, send us questions, comments, concerns, notes that you had uh, disagreements, um, preferably uh, politely done. But you know, if you want to get a little, you want to drop a hot take, you want to get a little saucy with us. Fine. Why oh not? yeah. We're all about sure. hot takes. Yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> Um, and with that, we will be moving on to recommend or refute. Uh, this is the segment. You all know it. You all love it. Um, we go around the table, we recommend a movie or we refute a movie. We either give you some precious time with film or we save you some time from terrible film. Um, and since Dixon was the person who picked Roma, thank you again for that, sir. Um, uh, you are the one who gets to kick off our recommender refute. What do you got for us? Cool. Yeah. Um, so uh, this week I revisited a movie that I really liked uh, from 20, another movie that I really liked from 2018, not Roma. Um, it's a uh, Claire Denis film called Let the Sunshine In. Um, so the three of us previously before we recorded this had talked about 35 Shots of Rum, which is one of her movies. And, and John and I have both seen Beau Travail, which I think is an, an absolutely incredible film that she made in uh, 1999. Um, Let the Sunshine In is from 2017. It is um, an indie drama starring Juliette Binoche about a middle-aged woman who is uh, a single mother who's divorced. Um, she works as a painter. Um, she's, has, she's successful in the art world. Um, you know, she's achieved uh, professional um, 
you know, success, but she is um, trying to find love in her life and she's divorced and she, um, you know, kind of tries to reconnect with her husband and she goes on dates with these different men. And um, it's just kind of about her quest to achieve intimacy and, and love in life. It's very indie, very French. Um, but uh, I, I think it's a really great movie. Um, Juliette Binoche is an absolutely incredible actress. Um, she's in a lot of French stuff. She won an Oscar for The English Patient. Um, and she was in the Ghost in the Shell reboot, which was not good, oh, but boy. she was good in it. Um, she was also in Claire Denis' most recent film, which was an English language film called High Life uh, with Robert Pattinson. It was a sci-fi uh, movie that you may have seen her in. But um, she's really great. She's in almost every scene, and she really carries this movie um, as a middle-aged woman around 50 who is, you know, has kind of achieved everything that modern society has said that women should want to achieve in, in professional success, but she is is just really lacking that love and intimacy that she wants in her life. And it's kind of an emotional roller coaster of her dating different men and, and, you know, each having their different shortcomings and her trying to figure out what she wants in her life and, um, you know, how, how best to achieve that. And, and just kind of about the, the difficulties of middle-aged romances and, you know, everybody has so much baggage at that point with kids and previous relationships. And it's just hard to connect with someone at that age, I, I would imagine, as it is um, somebody who's younger. Um, so it's really, it's a really empathetic film to to all the characters, and, and Juliette Binoche gives an, an absolutely incredible performance. Um, Denis is known for having really beautiful dance sequences in her films. Uh, if you've seen Beau Travail, you know what I'm talking about. Um, most movies, she has some kind of intimate dance sequence, and in, in this, there's a, a a scene of Juliette Binoche in a bar. Um, just dancing alone to Etta James's At Last. And it's just a really beautiful sequence. Um, and kind of when she is, um, she's had a frustrating conversation with a coworker and, and is just kind of really fed up with her failures in uh, her romantic life at that point. And um, it's just a really, really, really beautiful scene. And overall, I think it's a, a, a pretty great film. It's definitely an indie drama about relationships and characters. And so if that's something that you like, would definitely recommend it. Uh, Denis, within 35 shots of rum, I do think that there's that similarity Roma where there's a lot that you're kind of taking from context in the situation. Yeah. It does feel realistic, like the moments that you're in and you kind of have to understand the relationships that each of the characters has to each other as you go through. That would be another sort of similar pairing to Roma. Yeah, that would be interesting for sure. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that you have to pick up through context in her films and in, in Let the Sunshine In, you don't actually see a lot of her successful professional life or even her relationship with her daughter. It's really about her romantic relationships and you kind of pick up on these other things through the conversations that she's having. And that helps you build an idea of this more well-rounded character and these, these other aspects of her life. But it really um, trusts the viewer to pick these things up and understand them without kind of spelling everything out for you. Yeah. Yeah, that that sounds like a really interesting. I mean, and I've already seen Thirty Five Shots of Rum, Beautreville. Like the, those are films that I I would recommend um, definitely. And so this is one that I want to check out definitely for me. Um, cool. Yeah. Nice. Uh, <clears throat> so the movie that I watched, I've been running through the different movies that I've watched, uh, and which ones are recommends and which ones are refutes. 
I think I'm going to go for a refute this time. I said I wouldn't do this before we started this, but I, <laughs> I just have to. Um, I watched the <clears throat> 1970s French film called Donkey Skin. <laughs> uh, Interesting. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's based on a fairy tale um, about a princess. And as I guess most fairy tales kind of end up either being or they're cautionary tales about children getting into hazardous situations. You get one or the other. You don't get either uh, or some outside thing, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, and this particular French tale is about uh, a king and a queen and the queen dies of some mysterious illness on her deathbed. She makes the king promise that he will not marry anybody unless she's way hotter than the queen is. <laughs> that seems realistic. That yeah. seems like something a human being would say. Right? And so the king's like, how am I going to find somebody who's hotter than you? Um, turns out they have a daughter and she's hotter than the queen is mm. and nobody else in Dixon's making these eyes. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, ooh, 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 ooh. on the collar. Um, <clears throat> and so the king is like, being shown all these photos of women. He's, he's going through several women to find the right one. Um, very much like it's like medieval Tinder kind of, (laughs) it's it's like hearkening back to my terrible phrasing of road to Roma's production. Uh, yeah. So he's going through women and finally he's like, none of these are the good women. And then his servant is like, but there's one. And he shows him the photo and he's like, she's so hot. I have to know who she is. And he's like, she's your daughter. Wait, he didn't <laughs> like, know who his daughter was this whole know, time? He didn't know this whole time. Oh, he's like, wow. that's my daughter? What? Whoa. What? <laughs> I never looked at her that way, bro. And, and so the first half of the movie is dedicated to the king trying to romance his daughter. <laughs> Ryan, Ryan is... He's okay. closed his eyes. I don't know if he's trying to picture it or trying to expunge this, this from his brain this is, immediately. Yeah. This is the opposite of you trying to make America the movie sound entertaining. <laughs> uh, no, so like he, he's like, I got to marry my daughter. I got to figure out how. And at the same time, his daughter um, is being talked to by her fairy godmother. <clears throat> and her fairy godmother is like, don't marry your dad. That's really fucked up. And she's like, but like, why though? Why is it fucked up? And she's like, it, you just don't marry family. <laughs> like Vin Diesel over here. <laughs> you know what? Well, if everyone's your family. family. Yeah, everyone's, <laughs> yeah, everybody's your family. Uh, <laughs> so. Does the fairy godmother like have a wand and grant wishes and shit? She, yeah. She can. So they, they kind of allude to the fact that the fairy godmother has magical powers that can take her through time at times. So maybe she can go to the future and she can see that it's fucked up or. Dr. Strange is that shit and sees all the timelines and is like, there's only one where you don't marry your father. This is the one. Don't do it. Um, Every time someone says Dr. Strange, I get excited and then they don't say love and I get very disappointed. (laughs) I'm so sorry. (laughs) Um, So her fairy godmother's like, don't do it. There's even a song. This whole movie has songs in it. And there's a wonderful song that's like literally the chorus is like, kids don't marry their parents. And I was like, man, this might have been on the top 10 in France in 1970. <laughs> Run that shit all the time. <laughs> and, um, <clears throat> she's like, okay, I won't. But what can I do instead? Classical fairy tale slash mythology style. She's like, here's three things you should ask him for. These three different dresses. It's like a dress that's the color of the sky, a dress that... Uh, is as gold as the sun is. Um, and then, uh, or it's like not even a dress that's the color of the sky. A dress that's the color of weather, which is oh, ambiguous. Right. Okay, yeah, sure. A dress that's as, as beaming and glowing as the sun is. And then the last thing when they don't 
they can't do that anymore. They're like, well, he's got this prized donkey that shits gems every day. <laughs> Can you get him to skin that donkey and give it to you? Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, <laughs> so she gets the king to skin this ass. <laughs> and, oh. <laughs> and, and, and so he can her, tap yeah, that ass. <laughs> <laughs> gives her the, the donkey hide. And she's like, what do I do with it now? And the fairy godmother was like, all right, put this disgusting carcass on you. All right, now you're so ugly that everybody in town fucking hates you. Go live a peasant's life and clean stables. And that's literally the halfway point of the movie. So she goes to these stables and everybody's like, God, donkey skin sucks. Like she's the worst. That's her name. now. <laughs> that's her name. Yeah. That's her name now. Um, and nobody seems to recognize her because they put a little bit of dirt on top of her makeup. Hmm. Uh, this is the head on Disney the donkey movie. skin. The head of the like, donkey yeah. is always on her. Yeah. She's always carrying it everywhere. She wears that whole thing. She's doing And finally, like the prince of another kingdom. The only reason you know that kingdoms are different is because all the king, all the people in the uh, donkey skin kingdom, I'm just going to call that her donkey kingdom, skin <laughs> in donkey skin's kingdom are painted blue entirely. Even the horses are blue and all the people in the other kingdom are red. And the prince like of the body, full body, yeah, paint, full body faces, paint, full everything. body paint, full clothes, everything. But like tastefully done for the people. They're not like nude and red. They're just like <laughs> red with big puffy shoulder. Everybody looks like they can't fit through doors in this movie because their shoulder pads are so big. Um, and uh, the prince finds her. He's like, God, she's so maybe hot, I guess, under that donkey thing. Who knows? Um, I think he sees her face once or something. And then one day he's like, oh, I'm sick. I need a cake to be made for me by the only person in town who could make a kink donkey skin. And his parents are like the fuck. All right, I guess we'll do this. They have her make the cake. She sends him a cake. The cake has a ring in it that can only fit her finger, I guess. So the prince is like, now I need to find somebody to marry me. Whoever's hand fits this ring. And his parents even are like, seems like a, a flaw in the plot. Yeah. <laughs> At this point, even the script is no, like, like what, I know that. Where the hell did you get that? The, the parents are like, but what if somebody who isn't the person you think it is fits that ring? And he's like, man, I never thought about it. Yeah, fuck it. Open the doors. Like, let's Just some random dude. Yeah. So then they, and, they, uh, yeah. <laughs> some child. Happens to accidentally yeah. be in. <laughs> so then they go through it like 60,000, they go through like 60,000 women, right? <laughs> like, he's trying to find donkey skin and all the women have their own little quirks that are not attractive. And it's not that they're not attractive to people watching the movie. It's that the director, you can clearly tell was like, this isn't attractive. Um, and Do they all have either absurdly large hands or really small hands? Yes, exactly. <laughs> like one of them got the ring on and then the prince like literally fudges it around almost like, oh no, it doesn't fit properly and takes it off. And he's like, guess it's not you. Um, so Wait, did, did Donkey Skin put the ring in the yeah, cake? Yeah, the I, I, I guess so. And for what purpose did. and how did... The prince know that uh, it's a fairy tale, man. You can't question like mythology is full of that shit of like, because it must <laughs> happen. It does happen. You know, like there's just that of like, Oh, Achilles, his mom dipped him in the river sticks, except for the yeah, ankles. Yeah. That's why he died that way. Uh, I assume this came out after Cinderella. Yes. It feels oh, like yes. a reverse Snow it's, white Cinderella. It's a classic fairy tale in French culture. Apparently <laughs> <laughs> where women um, have very specific like, sizes of, of yeah, hands from like and feet. The it's a classic reverse edible complex. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyways, donkey skin shows up. Of course the ring fits her hand. They're going to get married. Um, and 
This was the part where I was watching this with some friends of mine. Um, one of them, she is French. She saw this movie 30 years ago. She did not remember how off the rails it goes. <laughs> and so halfway through the movie, she was like, this is way weirder than I remember it being. I, she was like, I remember being weird. I just don't remember being this weird. Um, well, right when we get to the end where everybody's having a happily ever after, we're in the front of a castle. We've got this beautiful wedding procession going on. Everybody's there except for the king, whom we somehow have conveniently forgotten. But oh no, what is this? Over yonder lights of Castle Hill comes the helicopter right over a castle as this helicopter lands right next to the wedding, opens the door of this this magnificent steed, this flightless horse, <laughs> or like this fucking metal flying horse. Um, and the king gets out so casually, accompanied by the fairy godmother who can travel to the fucking future. And she turns to donkey oh, skin. Oh, she brings the helicopter from she the future? She brings the helicopter from the future. Oh, my God. Okay. Um, <laughs> right. yeah, exactly. This is exactly the same pace that our brains caught up. And I was like, what the fuck? Okay. Oh. And she turns to donkey skin and goes, hope it's okay. I'm stupid your dad. And then moves to the end of the bridesmaids line. And, and like... Donkey skin just kind of nods. She still hasn't retained a name. There's no like princess that comes into it. She's donkey skin. Um, her and the prince kiss and they live happily ever after. And at that point, my friends got up. One of them was like, well, that was fucking weird. And <laughs> my, my French friend was like, yeah, it was uh, okay. Yeah, sure. I mean, I remember it being weird. I just didn't remember being that, being that weird. <laughs> and then they both left and I was like, okay. So, uh, so the fairy cool. godmother, after hearing that this man is a pedophile, she's like, I want that guy. That's the one for me. She's just really into like turning pedophiles. I like, can't tell if it was like a, well, I don't know if he's a pedophile so much as he is an Oh, I guess she's an enthusiast. adult. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, not a pedophile, just yeah, wanted yeah. to commit incest. So, yeah, yeah exactly. Was the fairy grandmother, fairy godmother then hotter than the wife? Before? Does that not matter anymore? I think that they might just be doing some no. stuff. I don't know if they're actually married, married. Uh, what's going on? They didn't really wrap that thread up. <laughs> In the plot. <laughs> it doesn't um, it doesn't matter because she can summon helicopters from the future. So oh, right. yeah. yeah. She's gonna that's like help him. Hot, actually. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's say. pretty hot yeah. and it's gonna help him win all the wars and, and shit. To be fair, to the script's credit, she they did say she can go to the future occasionally, and at one point the fairy godmother is like trying to tell somebody how to turn a, a torch on or something. She's like, Oh, maybe he needs a new battery. And they're like, the fuck are you talking about? And she's like, Oh, my brain. Um, I think I just like, I'm going through a thing right now where I don't even know what I'm saying. It's crazy. Everybody It's so crazy. <laughs> Batteries. You ran, they ran out of oil. Yeah. Just what is more that? Oil on it, yeah that's what yeah. I meant to say. I just came out with a buh sound. Yeah. I mispronounced oil. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, I have told you the fairy tale. It's an actual cultural fairy tale. Uh, the film itself, it's fun and campy in a way, but I don't recommend it for people who are <laughs> just looking for something to watch on the weekend. There's, I don't know. It's, it's so camp and goofy and I'm sure that the director tied to it. I can't remember his name at the moment, um, has some other seminal pieces and he plays, I think the set design and everything was really cool in it. It's just, yeah. Like uh, when three, uh, two of the three people who watched it got up and said, well, that was fucking weird and left. And I was just there like, no, I kind of liked it. Like I, I, 
that's my that's now my meter of like okay i probably should refute this uh, so you actually liked it yes john john likes you, you love bad movies so Stop much trying to make me admit yeah. this and so like you it, it's hilarious to see you be like i guess i should refute yeah. this but well, like you know, i'm gonna civic, watch it again later it's tonight my civic <laughs> duty to refute this story but i i did enjoy i had fun there were fun moments of it it's for like the more into film that you get this is one of those things where like you could watch it and have a good time with being like oh the set decor is really cool some of the effects they do are really cool but the story itself is like i don't know about any of this um if you liked death promise you will love (laughs) yeah right (laughs) yeah uh anyways that that is my refute out of civic duty uh (laughs) i think you should just have the balls to recommend it how dare you you can't no you're not gonna trick me twice (laughs) do this once with sorcerer you're gonna gonna say it's a cop out if i (laughs) i'm sticking to my guns here (laughs) um but yeah i I made it sound unappetizing with intent so (laughs) and i gave away the best kind of camp all the best parts parts yes Yes. so yeah you don't have to all the parts of it yeah ryan please cool uh i realized as you pointed out to me john that i've just refute every single time so far. So I will not. You are ta- six for six I'm in six refutes. for six. So I will not talk about Lynn Manuel Miranda's Vivo. Oof. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I will recommend The Suicide Squad, which is an absolutely confusing title because I can't talk about the other The Suicide Squad because it's just lowercase t. This is uppercase t, The Suicide Squad. Um, I will recommend it. I will say I know we kind of crapped on some superhero movies recently and had an extended As discussion, <laughs> an extended discussion about how uh, Black Widow was not good. Um, the Suicide Squad, I actually think, is a comic book movie. I think a lot of the comic book movies try to present something like they're either if they're DC, other than this, scared of their source material and try to get as far away from it as possible, or in Marvel's case, try to like clean it up for the masses a little bit and put maybe a little bit of flair and then run it through the machine and crank it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, James Gunn, who uh, I guess somewhat became untouchable when Marvel Disney realized like, Oh, he is this guy that says horrible things for shock and dropped him. And then I guess, Warner is like, well, all right, well, yeah, we're fine with that. Yeah, he got canceled for like a week. Yeah, he got so. canceled for yeah. like tweets he made that were pretty poor jokes, but, you know. But then he got rehired by Marvel. Like he's yeah. doing Galaxy 3, right? Disney knew about them all along and didn't have a problem <laughs> with them until somebody pointed them out. And, yeah, so then he's gone over and done the Suicide Squad, and then uh, Disney's forgot about everything is picking him back up again. Um, I am an original Suicide Squad apologist, I recognize that it's not good. I walked out of the movie theater and was like, wow, that was not good. But I sat down and wrote out how to make a better movie out of it because it, in editing, got ruined. But there is a decent movie underneath it if you completely restructure the movie from what we got in the theater. Is is part of that process removing Jared Leto? It is cutting down a lot on Jared Leto. I will agree on that. And honestly, they appear to have just moved away from that as much as possible in fact yeah they've removed some of the tattoos that they had on the harley quinn character in this movie to even distance her further from the joker oh i don't know if it's laser or this is another universe because it's never really explicitly clear is there a different joker in this one or he's just not in it not mentioned and also it's not clear if like 
if this is related to the previous Suicide Squad or anything else that's happening in DC or it's a standalone or whatever, again, exactly like a comic book. This is the most comic book movie possible. It takes place. Does it matter if you know what's going on before? Going on before maybe confuses this one. Doesn't matter. It's its own thing now, and that's what we're moving forward from. Um, the mistakes that the previous movie made, it cuts around. It's not linear. It needed to be a linear movie to have a clear, like, this is who these people are. This is who our villain is. We're setting up. We're kind of moving towards these things. And you understand. Instead, that movie jumps all over the place, and it's awful. It didn't focus on any, like, dramatic, like, here's a person and here's how they changed, even though they had one with the the uh, June and Rick Flagg character. Like, they have that, but they just sort of, like, obscure that underneath the movie and don't explain it. Uh, they have really don't have enough character moments it's over the top sometimes, but it's that like gritty, dark DC crap that doesn't quite make sense in any of its movies, much less the Suicide Squad. And then it tries to tell you like, hey, it's dangerous to be on the Suicide Squad. See, look, we killed someone off, but it's someone that you're like, that guy was never in the trailers. That's not an actor I know. <laughs> so when they're going out and they're like, y'all could die. And there's this one guy where you're like, who the hell is that guy over there? Like, that's the guy they're going to kill at the beginning so that you know that this matters. Um, Margot Robbie is not going to die. Yeah, you know, right? You're like, no, she's not going to die. This movie, like, took my list and was like, great, we'll do that. We'll brighten it up. We'll be more over the top. We'll give you character moments. It actually starts off with a fuck ton of deaths of actors that you know. Oh, really? Just right out the gate is like, oh, look at all these people. And then it's like, cool, boom, kill them. Um which is great because it sets up like, all right, wow, this is violent. It's over the top. Characters aren't important. We're going to introduce them, might kill them, whatever, um, which is great. That's exactly what this should be. Um, I think it's – I really enjoyed it. It's absolutely like a comedy thing. It's funny. It's enjoyable. It's violent. It's exactly what it should be based on the title, based on the characters that you, that they're using. I think Gunn brought you know, exactly what he brought to Guardians of the Galaxy, like – he actually gives a shit about the comic book characters. He's pulling characters, you know, out of the gutters and being like, oh, this will be interesting to use. This will be interesting to use. Definitely the first time I saw the trailer for this and I saw like Polka Dot Man was in it, who I know most people were like, what? And would look that guy up and I was like, oh, crap. They actually pulled like Polka Dot Man. Actually, what, what does Polka Dot Man do? He can fire polka dots, and they, like, dis <laughs> yeah, disintegrate stuff. Yeah. Did they, like, make people do the polka or no, something? No, yeah, or? they're just, like, he fires polka dots, and they disintegrate stuff. He's a, one of those Batman villains from, like, early Batman, like, very questionable. And, I like, I love the horrible Batman villains. What do and polka I, dots do to people when they hit they them? Just they just, like... They well, actually, the, like, eviscerate. They, like yeah, they... Flesh. They can, like... In the comics, he, like, hits you with them, and it's varying levels of power. Sometimes he just, like, hits you, and they're just, like, physical. And in some versions, they're much more destructive. Like in this Razor version, Frisbees? Like in this uh, version, they, like... Yeah. yeah, in this version, they, like, destroy anything they touch. Like, I mean, to particles. They just... It gets destroyed. And so, yeah, they show him early, like... He fires off a few of them, and it just, like, melts through a wall and melts everything past it. So it's, like, he's super, super destructive. Um, so it, it plays that, right, of, like, what, you're covered in polka dots? And then shows him being really destructive. It's funny, right? That's a great way to do something like that. Uh -huh, yeah. uh, and it is it does sort of 
reinvent the character from what he is in the comics, which is fine. He's fucking polka dot man. Who cares? <laughs> Yeah. Um, but when I saw that first trailer, I actually like, posted Facebook, and I was like, fuck yeah, Polka Dot Man. And I was like, next movie, Kite Man. Yes. And so I'm like, That's yeah. exactly what I was thinking. was like, Kite Man. Kite Man. On. Kite Man's the next one you got to get. Which, again, he's a guy who flies around on kites. Um, that's his thing, and he fights Batman. Like They might, they might not bring him into the live action. He's in the Harley Quinn show. He's in the Harley Quinn show, show yeah. he's so good in that show. Yeah, <laughs> they, they know exactly. That's the same kind of thing. Is Those are the characters that you use in the Suicide Squad. You pull people who haven't been used in years, have shitty powers, are stupid villains. You throw them all together, doesn't matter. And that they do that well. Um, Idris Elba is in this. I guess he was supposed to be recasting Will Smith's character, but I think they realized, like, well, maybe we could bring Will Smith back later. So they give him a new character. <clears throat> he's awesome. Idris Elba's always awesome. Like, he's really great. And essentially, you're mainly going through it with him and Margot Robbie. So you have kind of two, the same thing like what you had before with Will Smith um, and Mark Robbie in the previous one. Um, they throw in John Cena. They give him stuff that's John Cena stuff. There's my wrestling mention again. Uh, and it's exactly what you want from John Cena. Like he's, the character's kind of a dumb character. He It just fits well with like who he is. He's, you know, it, it, that actually I think he's pretty standout. Um and the others that the others that they follow with, so yeah, Joel Kim Kinnamer is returning as Rick Flag, Viola Davis returns as Waller, and I think actually plays Waller as an even more horrible person, which is great. Yeah. Another yeah, she was so wasted in the first one. So Viola Davis is so good. She's How so can you awesome. put her in your movie and give her nothing to do? They Just, give her a little bit more here and they make her like an even bigger dick, and it's great because that's what Waller is. She's like an intimidating asshole, and Viola Davis could play that and does it. Yeah. I think does a really good job. Um, and then they've added in the, the, you know, the few like new with John Cena, uh, Daniela Melchior plays, uh, rat catcher who can like control rats. And again, it's another one where you're like, all right, but it plays out really awesome and she gets used it. She does a really good job. That would have been really useful in death promise. Yeah. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Totally. Gotten those rats, got them out, used them against the, 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 what were they? The pals, the the property property pals, pals. (laughs) send the rats back after the property pals. Um, she does a good job of playing off Idris Elba and they actually create sort of a moment of them, like character moments that build on and you want to see them succeed even though they had been criminals in the past, right? So it kind of gets that element that the other movie didn't have. Um, and it just goes over the top. Like it, it just, it does stuff where I'm like, that's what comic book ne- movies need to be doing. It has its don't wake up, uh, was it funky boy? It gets oh, yeah. to that level of like, moment. yeah, oh, don't wake up funky boy. It gets to a level like that where you're like, oh, no, they're not going to. And then it's like, oh, oh, this is where we're going. And it's like, oh, crap. It goes over the top, which I think is what it absolutely needs to be. It has those moments of just like absolute violent that are like what you would see in a comic book where you turn the page. And it's like, oh, sh- holy shit. Kind of moments like that. It has that. So it just went right for that without even being ashamed or afraid to yeah. be that or to use those characters that way. There were definitely things that surprised me even beyond the like, oh, I know some of these characters can die. There were just moments where I was like, oh, crap, what does that mean now? Oh, crap, what does this mean now? Um, Not in like a, oh, these are amazing twists that people will think about for years. Just in like, you kind of, you sort of know where the narrative is supposed to go, but they still do a good job of just throwing surprises at you. So I recommend it. It's, you know, it's fast nine for me, I guess, because <laughs> because I like superheroes. I knew who Polka Dot Man was already. Uh, so, I, you know, this is definitely targeted at I like DC Comics more than Marvel. I hate the DC movies 
because of what they've done to these characters and how they're ashamed. This is the first one where I'm like, oh, I can see it. It's not in the dark. <laughs> it's like the characters <laughs> The characters look like the characters in the comics. They yeah. don't care that their costumes are dumb. Like, they they are. Like, great. Own it and move forward. Yeah. There, there's not, like, a moment where anybody in this particular movie, because I've seen it twice now Whoa. as well. Whoa. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I would watch it again too. So I, I actually, I actually sandwiched. I had a suicide squad sandwich, suicide sandwich. <laughs> <Squamish>. uh, <laughs> yeah. Where it was like, I watched the suicide squad. And then I watched the suicide squad. And then I watched <laughs> suicide the suicide squad. You watched yeah. a no, suicide sorry. squad. I watched lowercase T, the suicide squad. Um, and then I watched the suicide squad again. Um, just to get it's that like, like the Ohio high, State University, yeah, <laughs> Ohio State, the yeah. Suicide Squad. <laughs> um, yeah, and and I just appreciated how James Gunn played the characters completely straight. They're very serious. Um, even King Shark, yeah, who is played by Sylvester Stallone Slug, in yeah, voice, I, I what? That out. Yeah, I by, that yeah, out. and and in and in personal, like the the actual body that's acting it is um, James Gunn's it's, brother. It's Sean Gunn. Yeah, Sean he plays Gunn. two yeah. different motion capture roles. Yes, he plays Weasel. He also and he plays, plays King Shark. Also plays the Weasel. <laughs> um, yeah, and these characters are are just seriously like everybody's like yeah they just are in this world. There's no like look at the camera and wink, haha, funny. We're including this shit. It just is, and it's nice. It's refreshing. To not have, you know, like in Aquaman, they were like, he's got the classic Aquaman suit, but like, it's cool now though. Right? Yeah, right. We can't like, do it exactly shit. that. Yeah, they yeah. don't, they don't do that. They're like, yeah, fuck it. And like, Polka Dot Man has Polka Dots all over his body. <laughs> like, <laughs> whatever. Uh, just, just run with it. Peacemaker has this dumb helmet. He has this dumb ass helmet, um, but yeah. Yeah, and, and they make remarks about how like stupid it looks, but in more of like a, the characters themselves also recognize it. It's not like a, hey audience, we know that it's dumb, but we're going to treat it like a serious thing. And um, yeah, that was what I found refreshing. Also, just I enjoyed Guardians. I enjoyed James Gunn's style. Um, I enjoyed the level of gore. This was like a Guardians Unleashed kind of movie. Yeah. Is, is kind of how it felt. Not to really conflate the two or try to. Well, I, so I think lowercase T Suicide Squad. Didn't they bump like that? Deadpool was coming out, and they were trying to figure out, and they they were like, "Oh, we got to bump this up." There was a lot where they were trying to figure out what to do. This one, they're just like rated R from the get go. Yeah. And they rode hard into it and, and had a good time. Yeah. I, I'm still curious about the David Ayer cut of suicide squad, lowercase T. <laughs> one one <laughs> of my favorite film critics got in a, a Twitter spat with David Ayer recently because he was just ran Like he wrote a really good review of the suicide squad. And then somebody replied to his tweet and commented how bad Suicide Squad was, and it's Tim Grierson. He he responded to the reply and said, "Yeah, I don't think we need David Ayer's director's cut after this." And then David Ayer found that tweet and quote tweeted it with like screenshots of this long rant about how he like came from nothing and and turned his life around. <laughs> Nobody thought he would ever be able to make anything of himself, but he defied all the odds and he made this movie. And then the studio pulled it away from him and took all the soul out of it that he. Had had and and it was just like whoa man like that's a huge overreaction to this random <laughs> like person being like, like <laughs> impersonal comment that's a reply to a reply on twitter wow <laughs> yeah well i mean david ayer didn't have the fallback net of christopher nolan to tell him to not go see yeah, the just, studio just butchering of his it. film yeah like <laughs> zach snyder did <laughs> so i'm sure yeah as an artist he was probably very disappointed I, yeah and that's why i'm curious about it like i'm also kind of surprised that Warner Brothers didn't even try to gimmick it. Like, 
for Batman v Superman, they were like, oh, there's an extended cut. It's got like 20 more minutes and it totally makes the movie way better. And they did the same thing with the Snyder cut. Like, oh, it's the real cut, how it should have been seen. Like, it's the right stuff. Even put Jared Leto's Joker in it. And I don't know if they're like trying to allude to maybe doing that. I don't think they will. I don't think at this point they will. It sounds like Ayer has burnt, Ayer and DC have both burned that bridge. Yeah, Yeah. I don't know. I don't know that they would work with him on that going forward. But I have no idea where. Warner Brothers and DC are going at this point. Like this is a weird. I don't think like, they know. Where I don't think going. they know either. This is good that it that it happened and is in some universe. Whether they're moving forward with this or not, um, I went back and I was looking to try to see what year lowercase the, the squad saw, squad came out, and I found an article, and at the bottom it listed <laughs> uh, all the movies that were upcoming from DC, and it was like you know after this comes out, all these other great movies like. Justice League 2 and The Flash and Green Lantern Corps and Cyborg. And I was like, wow, none of those, ever got none made. Of those movies ever <laughs> got made. Because it was like 2019, 2020 of like what those dates were. I was like, wow, none of that stuff happened. Yeah. So they dropped. They just around that time that came out and Justice League bombed. They just swept everything off the table Oof. and were like, shit, what do we have left? So yeah. I'm surprised that they were like, well, was, I mean, Margot Robbie is pretty awesome. <laughs> let's get, <laughs> yeah, let's yeah. see what we can again. do more with that. She seems yeah. to like playing the Harley Quinn character, and that'll at least bring in some people. So She is one of the more likable characters in the DC universe. And, and yeah, she seems to really like that character and, you know, like to cut loose and, and play that role and do something that's different than, you know, the more, more serious roles that she tries to do. Um, and she was the only part that I thought was half decent in the first Suicide Squad and then I thought she was good in, in Birds, Birds of Prey. Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I'm sure she's good. In, she's good in this in too. Yeah, squad. she's good in this too. She gets her moments and and is, you know, it's the same character. I think she knew she had a vision, whether anyone else in that first movie did or not. Yeah. She had a vision and she found something that worked. It feels like she has willed yeah. this into yes. existence yeah. where like there have, that first movie was so bad and everyone hated it. And somehow she's gotten two more movies out of this character that she seems to really love playing and nobody else seems to really know what to do with. Yeah, I mean, Harley Quinn's one of my favorite characters. So watching her play it, uh, it's been kind of enthralling. Uh, just cool to see like the progression of the character and how she's changing it Yeah, in response to how directors and studios are trying to change the imagery or what's going on around it. Um, but yeah, seeing her in the first one, same kind of thing of like, oh, I want to know where this character goes. I don't care as much about a lot of the others. Um, yeah. And she did have really good moments, I thought, in The yeah. Suicide Squad. Yeah, I think she's good in The Suicide Squad. She produced Birds of Prey, right? Yeah. I mm-hmm. think that she really wanted to play that character again. And Yeah, I think she was a like a, a driving force behind getting that movie made. Yeah. So, uh, so I, I have a couple questions. Uh, one, you said there's a character called Peacemaker. That's a yes. comic book person that yes. seems yeah. and he's a like villain the antipathy of what a comic book person is yeah he's he, a villain does he make he makes peace and the heroes so don't like through that? any means necessary yes killing if he has kids, to kill women children yeah, women, anything kids, to get peace to but that's peace. not that's not peace yeah well so like when i was watching <laughs> the it, I was thinking, of peace. that's why he's a villain death maker <laughs> yeah i was kind of thinking about it because in contrast to peacemaker is the opposite end of rorschach he's the immovable object on the opposite spectrum of these things even though rorschach and watchmen and dixon I don't, well he's like watchmen, a, right? i did see Watchmen. yeah peacemaker is yeah. like a dumb ozymandias yeah he's a dumb ozymandias. <laughs> i remember very little from that movie, um, but, but yeah. like yeah if you remember the rorschach character had the rorschach mask he was yeah. very black and white he subscribed 
uh, in particular to conservative radio media, listened to a lot of like the, the like us versus them narratives and became very hardlined into his ideology of like, we can't maintain peace, even if it's an illusion, we shouldn't maintain it. And the end of Watchmen is kind of this crux of uh, spoilers for anybody who hasn't read Watchmen is written in the eighties and um, had its own movie by Zack Snyder at this point. And a TV show Bo- that Sorry, extends it further. Yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it, it very much had this whole ending of we're going to stage a crisis that unites the world. And Rorschach is completely vehemently opposed to that because of his hardlined ideology. He's like, it doesn't matter if you've killed 2 million people to save the entire world. That's not a value that you yeah, can, that's you, not, should, you have to tell people that you did the that. truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And peacemaker is kind of the same in a hardline way of like, I'm going to get peace by killing all of the people that don't, it seems kind of like the AI and like iRobot or any of those kinds of like <laughs> Thanos, yeah, Thanos uh, sort of things of like you have to make as many sacrifices as possible to get to the point where you've compromised everything to save something. Um, and that's Peacemaker's kind of deal. And John Cena plays him comically, and at the same time, there is an underlying. Yeah, I mean, he's a sinisterness. Yeah, I was like, sinister he, nature he's a villain and he gets he's across he's a villain. Yeah. yeah, and that, that, yeah, it's funny in the way that this movie is funny and that kind of Guardians of the Galaxy, right? Same way. James Gunn pulls this off well, where it's like, you have the character and it's, it's funny, but it's not pointing fun at them, but they can also be funny and you can scary, recognize the you know, flaw or, in it. Yeah. It, I don't know. Yeah. So it's interesting. That he's, but he's also getting his own series, right? I think there's a Peacemaker series. Yeah, something else that's that going to continue with it. That is coming out after or before, I don't know. Yeah, don't know the they want to continue works. with it. But, yeah. Um, so uh, yeah. Second question. So Stallone as a voice actor. I don't think I've ever seen him voice act before. That sounds great in theory. Like, I'd say, oh, like oh, he should just do a lot of voice acting. Is he good in the in the movie yeah, i think he's pretty he's, good yeah he's good yeah he is the groot of this yeah. dc film with more oh than, no does he just say he doesn't say no, no, he doesn't, oh, just, he doesn't, doesn't just say i'm yeah. king shark no, no <laughs> please no he, he says things that are legitimately funny when they're said in the context they're said or when you see him yeah since he doesn't even have to say something sometimes it ends up being a very likable character like yeah. it's it's one of those it is like Groot or are there any like like cheesy Rocky references in his no, dialogue? No, 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 they don't do they any actually, of that. Okay, they stay good. away from any kind of like nods. Yeah, anything like that. They actually are pretty much playing this like as a comic book. Like it's not throwing in jokes or making references or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty much straight straight through played. Yeah, he he just brings like a good. Like <laughs> this is a sentient shark. Yeah, <laughs> right to it, which is like. Not smart, you know. They actually yeah. start him off, and he's swim, eat, swim, eat. Kind yeah, of pretty much. Process. Yeah. When they introduce him, he's like sitting in the prison, and he has a book, and they're like, "Yeah, it's a sentient shark." Kind of play him off or whatever, and he's like, "I read," but the book is like upside down. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> All right. And they're like, "That book's upside down." And he's like, "I know." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just this, like a toddler mentality. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, but they give him good like pathos. Like it's a character that you kind of get to be like, ah. All right, you know, like you kind of get to where he's like, well, he has a bit he's of a, a shark, and, you know, yeah. that's probably what he would do. That's probably what a sentient <laughs> shark would do. Like, yeah, so they do a good job even with that. Yeah. And yeah, I think Solon does good. I mean, he's he's probably better in that 
role, honestly, than when he tries to be, yeah, uh, like like serious anymore. I think he had his moments, but I think now he's just become a character. Yeah, yeah. I thought he was good in Creed. I didn't see the second Creed, and I did not see the new Rambo movie, which I heard was terrible. The new but Rambo movie. It came out like three years ago, maybe. Oh. And uh, yeah, it got horrible reviews. It's the only Rambo movie I haven't seen. And I don't plan on seeing it. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry. I, I just my brain. I was like, I thought there was like a um, another Rambo movie. I thought they were trying to reboot Rambo. Yeah, they have a new movie. Rambo. There was one that came out in like oh seven or yeah. something, oh six maybe, and then there was one that came out like twenty nineteen. Is it okay. the Rambo? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> something. Like, the Rambo is another franchise that's really terrible with names <laughs> yes. like that. Like it's it's like First Blood, and then Rambo two, then Rambo three, then Rambo, <laughs> then I don't know what the name of the most recent one was, but yeah, uh, I can't not stand franchises that don't know how to name things that just make things very confusing uh my last question um I'm, I'm skeptical about this movie i will watch it because it is getting such good reviews and because you guys like it um i did like birds of prey uh what are your thoughts on this versus birds of prey what did, what did you like better i like this one better i agree i think birds of prey is all right Honestly, I, I think it's a little weak, but I, I think it... I didn't love Birds of Prey, but I liked it. And I was shocked that I liked it. <laughs> like, yeah, like, I, I think it's enjoyable. I like the characters. I think that's one where comic book movies often do come down to their villains, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think this is true about comic books. Like yeah, you, Birds of Prey does have kind of a yeah, shitty we, villain. We had this yeah. discussion when we talked about Marvel. Yeah, we talked about right, this in Marvel, yeah. too. The Ewan McGregor character is not yeah, very interesting. No, he's not very movie. interesting. He's not very compelling. Yeah. Um, you you want to see... You know what's gonna happen, right? Like it's it's like wrestling. You know who your good guy is. Cheers. Yeah. Yeah. I literally just took a sip. Now we're going again. You know who your good guy is. You know who your bad guy is. You know you want to see the bad guy lose, and he needs to lose eventually. But you have to hate him. You have to hate him to a certain extent. Not so much you're like go uh, away. Like I don't want to see you. I hate you enough that you're like yeah. I need to see this guy's ass get kicked, right? And so you do have to have something compelling where you. You understand how they became the villain. Like, when we talk about Peacemaker, where you're like, mm. I understand how someone could get to that warped vision. And sometimes our own government is that way of like, well, we're going to pretend that we didn't train, you know, Mexican nationalists to kill uh-huh. each other to yeah. destabilize, right? Because that's better for us, and we'll we'll you know it happened in another country. It's okay. We can do whatever we want. Right? We're going to pretend that we are giving democracy to Afghanistan. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I'm like, so you can you can see that warped vision. You can see where that character comes from, and you want to punch it in the mouth, right? So uh-huh. then it, that's where you get that feeling from. So I think if it doesn't have a good compelling villain, I think that's the part that I feel like was was weak in Birds of Prey. Yeah. I like the characters. I liked Harley. I like the over the topness they went with her, like the hyenas in her apartment and stuff. Like that's awesome. That's comic book shit right there. Yeah. Um, that was great. So I, I think that it was a good step forward for her character. They introduced some other characters that they're not using now. I yeah. don't know that I wish they had kind of oh, yeah. Is Mary Elizabeth with... Winstead not in, in yeah, this one? Nope. Yeah. Um, and I always I... like her when she's and stuff. She's not like I feel like she's she's kind of an underutilized actress who is really good when she actually gets a role she can work with. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wish that they would have kind of continued with those characters and pulled them in somewhat into some other things or gone forward. Um, but yeah, no, they're. I think it's just mixed. Uh, like it, it's better than a lot of the DC things for sure. Um, but enough where I was like, yeah, it was enjoyable and it was great. But I probably won't. I don't really plan to go back and watch it. I think I'll watch the Suicide Squad again just because it was. 
Yeah. It, it's just like a fun romp. Like it's a good action. Funny. I will say Darla said it was almost too violent. Like she kind of put it at that level where she was like, it was almost too violent. She was like, at least they didn't cuss like a whole bunch. She did not like the Harley <laughs> Quinn cartoon yeah. because it's like violent and cussing and yeah. loud. Like the whole time she was like, that's just too much. And it's an assault on the senses. She's like the suicide squad. There are moments where it's an assault on the senses, but it pauses and does some other stuff for a bit. So yeah, I, I like violent action movies. I, I mentioned this uh, when we, we had discussed birds of prey on a previous episode, I think in connection with another uh, I think with Black Widow we were talking about and comparing it to that. But like just Hollywood doesn't make hard R action movies anymore. And so when they do, it's like, oh, this is like kind of a blast from the past breath of fresh air where it's like, you know, this is a hearkening back to like the 1980s when this one came out every week. And now yeah, right. it's like we maybe get one hard R action movie a year, maybe two. Um, I guess nobody from earlier this year uh, would fall into that category. Was that was good? If you guys haven't seen that, Bob Odenkirk is great. But um, yeah, I, I'll, I'll definitely check it out. Yeah, this is definitely that. Like, it's violent. It's our violent. It's clearly over the top violence. Like, yeah, it's not Bone Tomahawk or anything. But it's you know, I haven't seen that. I've heard it's really good. A lot of people have recommended <laughs> yeah, that to me. It's violent. Seen it. You know, yeah. that's a different type of violence. This is that like. Oh man, fuck! Whoa, like kind of, yeah, but you you roll with it, kind of level. Right. It's, a, it's yeah. a Gallagher violence, really, is what you're saying. <laughs> this is the splash watermelon everywhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, I mean, I recommend it. Take a watch. I'd love to hear what your what your thoughts are. Yeah, I'll check it out. Yeah, I'm gonna keep pressing you into watching comic book movies, yeah, and we'll see what Burt your reactions are. I mean, this is. <laughs> This is me falling into the trap I always fall yeah, into, right? Yeah. Where the comic book movie gets good reviews and people tell me it's good and then I go see it and I hate it and I hate myself for falling into the same trap yeah. I always fall into. Got so that's probably what will yeah. happen. But I did like Birds of Prey, so if it's a similar vibe to that, I'm, I'm hoping that I'll like it. I'm going to go into it with an open mind yeah. and hope right, that cool. I like it. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to come away and be like, wow, this, you know, this is yeah. not a good movie. <laughs> oh, God, sorry. It's not a good movie. It's... But it's no, I think a movie like right? that can be good. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. have to be like a serious no, absolutely. Film. Right. Not, yeah. You know, yeah. This is exactly the thing movie. that Scorsese is like about, but it's great. Like this is what the people do like in the mm -hmm. moments. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Um, and and it will, like when I follow that trap with Marvel movies, e even if I'm like, okay, I'm going to give this a chance. I can't help but go into it with a truckload of skepticism. And with, because I did like, Birds of Prey, I, I have, and I know it's like a hard R movie. I have a little bit more uh, leeway there. Well, I'm, I'm willing to give it more of a chance on, on the way in. Yeah, there were less directorial restraints oh, in yeah, this film. No. Yeah, and I so that at least allows yeah, them to breathe. Yeah, that's cool. I feel that like is something is... that DC seems to just let their directors do what they want, which is, Most is very much in contrast <laughs> yeah. to Marvel. I yeah, I guess I with yeah. Suicide, for, Squad. Suicide Squad and with uh, Justice League, but then they with the, you know, the recut, they let them to, they give more freedom to their, their directors than Marvel does. They, they seem to kind of like come and go. Like they were like, oh, right. Snyder, do whatever you want. And they're like, oh, and oh Batman for Superman was terrible. Yeah, they're like, oh, we're starting to get some backlash. <laughs> so then they try to rein it in, but too much. And uh, yeah, so they're kind of like all over the place. I think they're very inconsistent. Yeah. Um, well, with that, <clears throat> if there weren't any other additional notes, we can wrap up. Um, That's all I got. Yep. Cool. So that brings Recommender Refute to a close. Um, I want to take a personal moment real quick. This oh, is shit. something out of nowhere for, uh, out of, out of, yeah, it comes out of seemingly out of nowhere for uh, Ryan and Dixon, but uh, I did just lose a pet recently. Um, I lost one of my birds, one of my parakeets, uh, Sora, 
And I wanted to recommend a movie in her memory, in her honor. Um, it's a documentary that was made in the early 2000s. It's called The Wild Parrots of Telegraph Hill. And it follows a man who uh, basically cares for these wild parrots in San Francisco for years of his life um, and tries to piece together why he is taking care of them, what his human connection is to these animals. Um, and along the way, there are some kind of surprising discoveries to it. But I just wanted to do that as like a, a sentimental shout out. I'm a I'm a big softy. I had a, a kind of a sad, hard time with that. And I just wanted to recommend that movie to other people to, I don't know, uh, get that off my chest and, and put something in memoriam um, for my bird. So I would recommend that. Uh, and, That's cool. That, that sounds interesting. Yeah, yeah. definitely check it out. Um, and with that, uh, I mean, I'm the picker now, right? So I have to you are. pick yep. my movie. It's not unfortunately <laughs> the wild birds of telegraph hill uh it is um i believe 2004 uh movie uh marvel had not yet figured out what they wanted to do with certain characters oh no and uh dixon uh, uh. I'm, I'm sorry i'm so sorry but i have a feeling you're gonna enjoy this one it's 2004 uh the punisher starring thomas jane you have referenced this many, many times. Yeah. I saw Starring this I John think when it came out and I never revisited it. Yes, and but. you never revisited it. I saw it like 15 times at wow. a dollar theater because it was 50 cents a watch. Even though it's a dollar theater, the Punisher got the 50 cent treatment, everybody. The, the guy was like, <laughs> Is that like a Tuesday special type of thing? Or? I yeah. think it was just an any day special kind of thing for the Punisher. <laughs> the guy up in the projector booth is like, you, you can just stay in the seat. I have to yeah. keep this thing warm. <laughs> Like the movie yeah. stars Tom Jane. We can't charge money for this. Like, um, I just want to see my family. I just want my kids, kids back. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've, I've referenced it several times, even before this podcast existed. I've brought it into discussions. Um, it's something that I haven't seen in a long time, but I did watch it a handful, quite a lot of times, actually. And then I watched it one more time when I bought the Blu-ray that has it. <laughs> <laughs> with some friends cheers. of mine yeah, that. cheers uh and and after it was over my friends were like yeah it was pretty okay i guess and they did not ask any questions about it but i know that this table will ask questions i remember <laughs> a, not liking this when i saw it when i was like 14 or whenever mm -hmm. this 15 whenever this came out so we'll see yeah. <laughs> so we, we will see uh if anything it'll be a fun uh rip into it um and i think that I'm roping it into that category of movies with well, one time I'll share this personal note before we sign off um, for one of my birthdays. I think when I turned like 25 or something, uh, I decided to show Vegas vacation at the place I was working at <laughs> was a movie that I absolutely love. I have a, a soft spot in my heart for it, even though I own all four vacation movies on DVD. He admitted it. He admitted <laughs> oh, it, everybody. Oh. Now you drink twice <laughs> in a row. Four um, times. Um, yeah. Four times. Yeah. yeah. There you go. It's, it's even more exponential. Uh, um, yeah. And I showed it at, uh, at my previous company and one of my coworkers and friends came up to me and they said, that was the worst movie I've ever seen in my life. Why did you make me sit through that? And I anticipate that that is the opening remarks from Michael Dixon in the next episode <laughs> for The Punisher. But but it might not be the worst movie you've seen. It might just be a bad movie. Man, the backlash is real. I got it. Do I need to start picking worse movies? Will you pick good movies if I pick bad movies? Or, no, no, no. or is this okay, or is it go even kinda, further yeah, down? It just get the... worse? All right. I don't know. I'm going to make a promise right now <laughs> that after this, we're a little out of the woods. I'll bring us back to something. Uh, something a little bit more, but 
yeah, I kept thinking more and more, this isn't a death promise. I don't think this is anywhere near a death promise level quality. Well, at least yeah. a side production yeah, value. Yeah. At least side production yeah. value. And it is directed and written by the same person. So there is a unified vision there. Mm. It is not somebody who was brought in outside because they were owed a favor or something like that. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. I actually, I think early on in uh, How Did This Get Made, uh, the, uh, the bad movie podcast with Paul Shear, Jason Manzoukas, and June Diane Raphael, uh, they talked about the, the Punisher sequel. And oh, they yeah, had the director on the podcast. And it was like, one, like they do kind of two types of bad movies, like one that is actually really bad and hard to watch and one that is like, bad but fun like they do the fast and furious movies and they did a face-off episode it's like the movie is stupid doesn't make any sense but it's fun and so they'll just like talk about how batshit crazy it is like punisher warzone was like more in that latter category where they actually enjoyed it but they kind of thought it was stupid but like they like brought the director on and talked about the movie with her so like they liked it enough to not feel weird about talking about it with the director um and i remember her saying that like she thought the first one was like okay but then the second one she like really wanted to ramp up and make like more absurd and, and over the top i never saw Warzone, um so yeah i yeah. didn't either but um hey maybe as a surprise maybe i'll maybe i'll do it maybe i'll watch yeah. both of those maybe i'll do <laughs> both like a death yeah. pact is killing yeah <laughs> it's it's slowly working after we shook hands over new york new york it was never the same for this table uh <laughs> and her um but yeah but those were good movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, that is my pick. I'm sticking to it. Uh, and right. we will see how it plays out uh, next episode of the Knights of the Underground Table. Um, so yeah, farewell, everybody. We'll see. We'll see you all next time. Wait, we are we doing the sign? We're off doing thing? the sign off. Yeah, Sorry, I'd fucking let me figure it out. <laughs> I've had too much whiskey at it's this point. Been, cut been, this, cut this out, Alyssa. Yeah, it has been a couple <laughs> weeks. Yeah, sorry. I'm a little rusty, especially at the beginning when I locked eyes with you, when I was like, dude, fuck whatever I'm saying. It just doesn't matter. <laughs> Keep going. Doing the bit with Dixon. Um, anyways. So yeah. Uh, and with that, uh, we've been the night, we've been part of the Knights of the Underground Table, uh, not the douchebags <laughs> that carry swords and fight for the king, <laughs> obviously <laughs> the opposite of day. Uh, I am your host, John Garcia with me as always, Ryan King. See you next time. And, and Michael Dixon. Thanks for putting up with our bullshit.